This week, we discuss another big-budget vanity project from the 80s. How bad did this movie bomb? In his review, Heaven's Gate, back in 1981, Roger Ebert said the film is, quote, the most scandalous cinematic waste I have ever seen. Wow. I, I, don't, I don't think he liked this thing at all. That's pretty harsh. I'm Troy Sauer. Dead Horse Brian Anderson. And Sammy Christofferson from the GGTMC. And this is not a bomb. Welcome back to your favorite podcast that talks about all the movies that bombed and we do a reevaluation. Brad, Sammy, we're, we're jumping into a big one here. Uh, I, I would say out of, I guess, our circle of friends, Heaven's Gate is, I, I don't know, one of the most beloved bombs. Is that accurate? Uh, maybe. maybe. Might be. Could be. I think, I think the interesting thing about this bomb is when people think of movie bombs, this has to be like in top three in the conversation, like every time. Yes. I agree with that. Uh, I think, yeah. I think we would all agree with that. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So I have a question. So the, the whole topic of like November was Brad and I picking films that we'd never seen before. And I don't know about you guys, but heaven's gate, I bought right when it came out on criterion blu-ray and it sat unopened in the two watch pile up until this week. So I don't know how many years it's been out there, but it finally got. I think that was 2012. Was that 12? <laughs> Could be. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but Sammy, had you seen this before? I have. I've seen this a few times. Yeah. I've uh, I've watched it numerous times over the years, and uh, kind of come away with a different opinion almost every time. Oh, That's really? a lot of Heaven's Gate. That's a lot of Heaven's Gate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, we all watched the Criterion, right? So that was two nineteen, two hundred nineteen minutes long. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about all the different cuts here. Um, <laughs> Brad, it, it, had you heard about this film? I mean, outside of the general discussion, is there a reason why you hadn't watched it yet? Or, um, it's hard to say. I think it was just all the negative buzz around it, and then you also know that it's over three hours and thirty minutes, and you're like, well. I don't want to waste three hours and 30 minutes if everyone's telling me it's not very good. Um, and there was a time when I was very anti-Western. Um, so it, it took me a long time to kind of come around on the Western genre. This one is maybe like, like an anti-Western in a way. Um, uh, but yeah, there was a lot of things that were, were going against this film for me. Um, but I did get that criterion and, and this was just like a good excuse to finally put it in um, and sit through it. So I did, uh, I will admit, it took me two sittings. I watched the first two hour-ish, um, and then I watched the rest of it the day after. So I did not watch it all in one time. Okay. Well, I don't. so I had heard about this film, I think it was back in 2004. There was a documentary, and I don't know if you guys had seen this. It was called Z Channel, A Magnificent Obsession. 
Have you heard yeah. about this documentary? I've seen it. Yes. I have not seen that. Okay. So do you know what the Z channel is, Brad? I don't, I don't know what Z channel is. Uh, it was one of the first paid television stations in the United States when like cable was getting off of the ground. And I believe it was primarily out on the West coast. And so the documentary focuses on, um, the program director, Jerry Harvey, and he's kind of a guy who through the Z channel sort of single-handedly was, was responsible for getting a lot of films, um, kind of displayed in their original format, especially a lot of foreign films. And the thing about Z channel. So today I really don't think you would have, um, especially in the eighties and nineties when there was letterboxing, et cetera, and criterion putting out these, you know, special editions in the proper format. I, I don't know if that would exist unless you would have something like Z channel that was sort of testing the waters with it. I mean, it eventually went under, but the Z channel sort of popularized the use of letterboxing on television. That's kind of the first place you would see it as well as showing director's cut versions of the film. And the reason why this documentary is kind of important is because the Z channel kind of coined the director's cut as a result of releasing heaven's gate at that time. And it tried to show it in its original format and in its original running time. And that was this documentary. So it was back in 2004. I, I, I don't know. I never really paid attention to this film, but as soon as I saw some snippets of it in this documentary, it was like, oh my gosh, I, I can't wait to see that. And then lo and behold, I don't know how many years later, Criterion says, hey, we're going to release Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. And it's a you know new restored cut. And uh, quickly ran out to get the Blu-ray, I think opening day, and never watched it. So... So 17 years is the number that par, took you to this. Yeah. Par for the course, I think, in my opinion. I'm always late to the, you know, party on this kind of stuff. No, uh, I mean, I think I think that's fine, though, because I think Heaven's Gate on the surface, it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really speak to people on the surface. It's a, it's a commitment, and it's a period piece, not just a Western. Yes. It, you know, and it's just, and... As much as I like Chris Christopherson, he's not really a big draw, except he's he's very it's a very niche audience. It's a very small audience to me. You know, Sam Peck and Paul films, things like that. That's I mean, outside of that and my dad's love of his music growing up, I, I really don't know a lot of people who would just run out and see that movie. Yeah, I, honestly, my introduction to Chris Christopherson was during the CB craze. Uh, yeah, yeah. with movies like Convoy. So, Brad, you weren't around for that when that just, like, blew yeah. up, man. He's talking about the Z channel, too. Remember when, Troy, you and I, and Brad might remember this, I don't know, uh, but remember when, like, TNT and stuff would show, like, movies in Letterbox and yeah. people would complain? <laughs> oh, yeah. Would complain, and they would go back and show the pan and scan version of The Good, The Bad, The Ugly because people complain so much about the letterbox. Like, I don't want these black bars on my TV. Oh, and if you worked in a video store during like the 90s, that's all you heard was, I don't want black bars. I want it to fill up my entire TV. So, yeah, I bought 27 inches of TV. I want the thing on all (laughs) 27 inches. And that was a massive TV at at one point in time. That was a 400 pound TV. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Heaven's Gate is based on sort of a historical event. And actually, there's a lot of Westerns that take, I guess, elements of this time in history and have turned it into a lot of films. But 
Specifically, Heaven's Gate deals with the Johnson County War. Are you guys familiar with the events that kind of happened? Um, they didn't exactly go down in the film, but do you know the history around um, this time period? Not really. I just, no, <laughs> to be honest with you, no. I didn't have time to to do that much research into it because yeah. the production production <laughs> stuff will uh, will tie up for a long time. Okay, well, listeners, we're we're going to give you a little history lesson. So, the interesting thing about Heaven's Gate is when we talk about the film and sort of give our thoughts and ideas, Michael Cimino takes some liberty from historically what had happened, but I think thematically he's still trying to tackle you know the the same narrative. And um, maybe the the same moral lesson. But what happens is the the Johnson County War, also known as the War on Powder River and the Wyoming Range War, was a range conflict that took place in Johnson County, Wyoming from 1889 to 1893. The conflict began when cattle companies started ruthlessly persecuting alleged rustlers in the area, many of whom were settlers who competed with them for land, livestock, and water rights. As violence swelled between the large established ranchers and the smaller settlers in the state, it finally accumulated in the Powder River country when the rangers hired gunmen, primarily from Texas, to invade the county. The gunmen's initial incursion in the territory aroused the small farmers and ranchers, as well as the state lawmen, and they formed a posse of about 200 men that led to a grueling standoff. The siege ended when the United States Cavalry, on orders from President Benjamin Harrison, relieved the two forces. So these guys came in, stepped in, and said, okay, enough, right? The gunmen hired by the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, the WSGA, were taken to Cheyenne to be held at the barracks of Fort D.A. Russell since the county jail was unable to hold that many prisoners. The county attorney began to gather evidence for the case, and the details of the WSGA's plan emerged. A grip sack was found to contain a list of 70 alleged rustlers who were to be shot or hanged, a list of ranch houses the invaders had burned, and a contract to pay each Texan $5 a day, plus a bonus of $50 for each person killed. So basically, a corporation hired a bunch of guys to go out into a state and murder people. So the local newspaper reported that the evidence is said to implicate more than 20 prominent stockmen of Cheyenne, whose names have not been mentioned before. Also several, several wealthy stockmen of Omaha, as well as to compromise men high in authority in the state of Wyoming. They will all be charged with aiding and abetting the invasion and warrants will be issued for the arrest of all of them. So as soon as the news broke, everybody was kind of getting hauled into court. Now, this is where it gets just really crazy. The invaders, however, so the WSGA and the men that they hired, were protected by a friendly judicial system, and they took advantage of the cattle baron's corruption. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, Charges against the men in high authority in Wyoming were never filed. Eventually, the invaders were released on bail and were told to return to Wyoming for the trial, Many just fled to Texas and were never seen again. In the end, the WSGA group went free after the charges were dropped. Now, here's the excuse. That Johnson County refused to pay for the costs of prosecution. The cost of housing the men at Fort D.A. Russell were said to exceed $18,000. And the sparsely populated Johnson County was unable to pay, so they just released all these guys who murdered these people. 
So that's the real life story that this movie's based off. Yeah. Welcome to America. Yeah, I was going to say. A country that never changes. <laughs> yes. Does that story shock you? I mean, I, I had grown up on Westerns, and you hear all about, you know, the wrestlers and the cattle barons. And, I mean, how many Westerns are, are kind of based on that? And even movies like Young Guns, where, you know, you have these regulators who are seen as heroes. But when you go back and you kind of look at, um, like, the true history of it, you've got incidents like this exist. And, I mean... To me, it's it's pretty shocking, right? So Chimino adds some immigration in there in terms of some characters, but the core of the story is the same in that Heaven's Gate is really about cattle barons who hire a group of men to go in and basically commit genocide in Wyoming. So the only very- Heaven's Gate was about a skating rink. No, no, it's not that. I mean, <laughs> okay. that's, that's a pivotal scene. However- <laughs> Um, Chimino, um the, uh, yeah. but I think Chimino claims that, and I don't know if what you read said this, I didn't, I didn't hear it when you read it, but that Harrison, uh, president Harrison, uh, basically blessed the whole thing to go in. But of course, when the shit hit the fan, Harrison's like, you know, I mean, true politicians like, yeah. well, you know, I never said that. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the it, cattle, yeah, the cattle barons are like, hey, Harrison, there you go, making it rain, buddy. Yeah, so um, it's interesting. I mean, it like I said, there's some blemishes, and and the characters that we're going to talk about in this film, the names do exist, but they did not exist in the way that Chimino portrays them. So keep in mind, Heaven's Gate, the film, is taking this incident, and of course, true Hollywood fashion. It embellishes it. It creates a love triangle, et cetera. That wasn't really the the history of those real people. But at the core of Heaven's Gate, the narrative, again, is this WSGA sending men out on a mission, more or less to, you know, eradicate these small farmers. And and that's the that's our story of the film that we're gonna talk about tonight. But we all said it was a pretty infamous bomb for its time. So Brad we always start with you and we go through the financials and kind of talk about what was going on. This film came out in 1980. So we're starting the eighties out with a big vanity project. Um, and a time when movie studios, uh, kind of believed in its director. And, you know, there were some, there were some key directors. They said, you know, carte blanche, right? Go do what you want. Here's your budget. We don't care. So that that's the time period we're talking about here. So let's, let's talk yeah, the about seventies were very big on, on giving carte blanche to yeah. Robert Altman, uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, Michael Cimino, just saying, we're not going to interfere. You do whatever you want. Um, this kind of ends that era. It's funny. This film comes out in 1980 because it essentially says no more of that. We're not going to risk a director being trained or, you know, uh, taking all the control and essentially getting the budget way out of control. Um, you said this film was released in 1980. It's November 19th, 1980. But then again, it was released in April <laughs> of 1981. Yes. Um, so essentially, we initially get the three-hour and 30-minute cuts, um, and then the studio pulls it and says, hey, we got to cut this down. Uh, they cut it down to like, what is it? Like two-hour and 20-minute cut uh, to kind of appease maybe to help uh the audience digest it 
digest it a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, Which is still an epic by 1981 standards because, yeah. I mean, that's an average film length nowadays, but back then, three hours was considered an epic. That's when you had so, intermissions, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah there were intermissions, yeah. Well, and, and that's one of the things that happened during the screening of his first cut to in November of 1980. Uh, People were pretty bored during the intermission time, and it was it was big trouble. Uh, they they pulled it, which is unprecedented. I mean, not unprecedented, but it's very rare that a film comes out, gets pulled, and then they try to um, release it again. Um, so initially, the budget for Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate was seven point five million dollars. Uh, that quickly ballooned to 11.6. They agreed that that was going to be the final budget. Um, and then things started happening, and the final reported budget on Heaven's Gate is $44 million um, in 1980s money, which is roughly about $120 million in today's uh, today's dollars, yeah. uh, which is a lot. Um, the problem... With that is, the film only grossed $3.5 million, so wow. it lost, just on production alone, Ouch. over $40 million. Um, this is, like we were talking about earlier, one of the most notorious bombs of all time. Uh, when you look up uh, box office flop, this is one of the examples they give you. Uh, last week, we talked about Ishtar. Ishtar is also one of them. Uh, you put in Waterworld, and that's kind of your trifecta of movie bombs. Yeah. Um, well, there's there's one other one. So you had said that this was the one that kind of the studio said, all right, we're done with handing paychecks over to directors. Mm-hmm. This was kind of the last one. It, it was sort of the salt on the wound. I want to say it was a year before, 1979. Spielberg had a huge flop because I think Universal had given him a ton of money for 1941. And it's right. another infamous oh, yes. bomb. So there, there were these high-profile directors who had really these blank checks from the studio. And after yep. bomb after bomb, it, it was finally Chimino's, which I think had the worst repercussion for a studio. Um, that was the one that sealed the deal. Where all of a sudden the you know Universal, all the all of these right, were just like, nope, we're not we're not doing this anymore. Well, and I also don't think it helped that Chimino was. Uh, just a huge asshole on set as well. <laughs> yes. So, you know, they, they're like, well, not only are we not going to give this guy a blank check anymore, but just nobody. And of course, uh, United Artists went bankrupt and all that stuff. So there, there was repercussions all over the place. Yeah, there's a theory, uh, and Chris Christopherson kind of embraces this theory, that it was done on purpose to get control of Hollywood away from the director and back to the studio. Um, I don't know about that. Um, Are you talking the, about the deep state? Is the deep state yeah, involved? Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if President Harrison approved that or not. I, I mean, I just honestly, I just don't know if that's true or not. But I understand that theory because Jaws had come out, and a lot of people consider Jaws the death of New Hollywood. Uh, but it's kind of part of New Hollywood in a weird way because it's a very unique kind of experience, right? And obviously. You know, Spielberg goes back and tries to create something unique to him, a director film, and he falls on his face. And, you know, at this point in time, Brian De Palma is really hard to get along with with the studios. Robert Altman's difficult. Michael Cimino wins an Oscar. So now he gets to do what he wants. And <laughs> they're mad. And then there's this theory that Hollywood producers want to control of their money again. And uh, 
it, this is a great metaphor for it. I don't know if it's warranted. <laughs> well, it might be warranted, but <laughs> we'll talk about that. It's yeah. it, it's totally different. If you think about um, uh, the director, is it No Man Land that she won an Academy Award for? Did I get the title yeah. right? Yeah. No yeah. It turns around. No, and, no, Nomad Land. Nomad Land. Yeah. So she turns around and does The Eternals for Marvel. And everybody kind of praises Disney and Marvel for saying you're embracing a very unique visionary director. But if you go and watch the Eternals, it is very much it it has, you know, elements of her style in there, but it is very much a Marvel film. And Kevin Feige and, and Disney and all of those um, behind the scenes are not going to let any director mess with the formula that's bringing them, you know, probably a billion dollars per film. But back in the 70s and 80s, that it was an entirely different time in the studios where you really had. Uh, probably more art than commerce behind the camera, which oh, today yeah. it's it's yes. way more commerce than art. Yeah, and we should say the audiences back then were much more open to that as well. I yeah, I, I would say that your 1970s audience was way more sophisticated and willing to uh, to to see stuff that was maybe a little bit more uh, experimental, things like that. Sure. Um, today, obviously, I think uh, you play it safer. But the audience is way more uh, acceptable to that. Um, so when this, when Heaven's Gate was initially released in uh, 1980, in November of 1980, it was released alongside a film called Raging Bull. Oh boy! Um, yes, yes. Uh, some consider Raging Bull the best movie of the decade. It comes out very early in the 80s. Um, where do you all got stand on, on Raging Bull? Is it like in your top five of Scorsese films? Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I, I, look, wow. Uh, well, no, I love Raging Bull. I do. But it, it's not the most rewatchable film because it's all about misery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is difficult to rewatch. Yeah. I but, mean, it, it might be one of the most amazing performances ever put to film, period. Yes. I mean, nobody can deny that. Um, but the film is tough to rewatch as entertainment. It's something yeah. I can revisit maybe every five to ten years and feel yeah. okay. But it's not it's not on rotation. In the I house. always just <laughs> consider Raging Bull a De Niro film. Yeah, more than yeah. a Scorsese film. I, I think it's, that's what it is. I mean, I I, I love it. I'm with Sammy. It's I got to be in the mood to watch it. Uh, I also have to be in the mood to watch like Taxi Driver and some of those. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, but I, I, I agree with both of your guys' comments. It's it's hard to watch. I think it's fantastic. I equate that more to a De Niro. Like when you say Raging Bull, I automatically think of De Niro. Yeah. Where this may sound weird. When I think of Taxi Driver, I think of like um, probably Scorsese Schrader. Um, but then Goodfellas, I think all of Scorsese. So, yes. you yep. know, Scorsese's got a hand in all of those, but he's not the first one that I gravitate to for Raging Bull. Yeah. There was a lot of fighting behind the scenes for Raging Bull, too. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Scorsese is also notorious to be hard to, to work with. And yeah, all like, these guys, all, all those control. guys yeah. from the seventies were because they were they were on top of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They I had mean, vision, man. They're fighting for the. I'm vision. sure the co- I'm sure the cocaine probably didn't help too much. So <laughs> probably, um, probably helped things uh, on their side. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when the film Heaven's Gate was re released in April of 1981, it comes along comes out alongside things like. Uh, Night Riders and Excalibur. <laughs> Night nice. Riders is a batshit crazy movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. If you haven't seen Night Riders, you need to 
check that out. I, I um, consider it to be a very good bad movie. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and when I mean that in the most heartfelt way. I love the movie, but I think it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> uh, there was one more I wanted to note. Uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Two was the other one that I wanted yeah. to note. So my favorite, pretty good my favorite, Yeah, my favorite Friday Thirteenth. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> here is something I found pretty shocking when I went back and looked at the Rotten Tomatoes score for Heaven's Gate. Sits at a 59% on Rotten Tomatoes for a film that some consider one of the worst movies of all time. I feel like a 59% is pretty high. So, Uh, yeah, that's got to be post um, the Venice or whatever. So it got a re-release internationally. Yes, in in 2000, was it six or something like that? Yeah, I I have to say when it originally came out, it was if Rotten Tomatoes existed, it was probably sitting (laughs) in the single digits. Because even people like Ebert, which, you know, we kicked off the show reading his views on it. I mean, there wasn't a critic who liked this thing that was out there. Maybe one or two. Everybody universally. It wasn't they panned it. They hated it. Yeah. Okay. Um, With the audience score also at like 54%. So audience and and critics kind of right in line there, um, which I find pretty surprising that you can find out of 100 people, you could find 54% people who would say, yep, I like that film um, just on the runtime alone. But anyway, um, yeah, that's your, that's your numbers for um, heaven's gate. Yeah. Uh, I think this might be the first one we've ever done where it was officially got two release dates. Yeah. It's interesting too. We should say that I know we don't usually bring up this data and you guys don't, but it sets in a 6.8 aggregate on uh, IMDb as well, which is pretty high on IMDb if you ask me. So, I, I considering agree. what this yeah. film is, considering the reputation of this film, 6.8 does not sound like the reputation of this film. <laughs> so even people that I talk to who have recommended it always bring up the reputation. And I think when this thing got released, there was so many stories coming about the making of heaven's gate and the stuff that was going on behind the scenes. I, this to me, this film was kind of destined for failure just because of what everybody you know was saying about it even before they sat down to see it. And then when the premiere came and they're saying, Oh, well it's a three and a half, almost four hour film on top of something that sounded like a very big ego vanity project. It, it really was destined for failure. However, if you look at the talent behind the, the camera, um, this, this thing had some pedigree and we got to start with Michael Cimino. Um, Sammy, the, the first film that shows up on his resume as a director is Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And it's a Clint Eastwood, Jeff Bridges film that I'd never even heard about until your show. And I think you reviewed this pretty early on, if I remember correctly. Yeah. 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 This was very early on. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a unique film. It's a buddy film and a crime film, but kind of a unique Clint Eastwood film, kind of an oddity in his filmography. He has a few of these. Um, where he's, he's basically not a good person in this one. He's not a hero of any sort. And uh, Jeff Bridges is kind of, they got the showy part as this kind of simpleton, maybe slightly mentally unstable, certainly mentally challenged character in some way. But it has all the Chimino landmarks or the, 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 the panache to it. It has these big sweeping landscapes and stuff. And it's something that if you look at his whole filmography, it's something he comes back to over and over again is these huge wide shots 
yeah. of landscapes and how little we are in these landscapes. He he loves that. Uh, honestly, I love that too. It's one of my favorite things he does. But yeah, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot's a great little movie with one of the weirdest scenes ever <laughs> with the guy that uh, did the rape and deliverance and the trunk full of bunny rabbits. And it's yes. like, what is going on? <laughs> It's and still weird. to this day, I don't know what I don't know what it meant. Wow, have you have you <laughs> really seen it, Brad? Weird. I have not. I have not. I was I was texting with you guys over the week, and Sammy had said, "No, you definitely need to check it out." So okay. you definitely. I, I, I will say, outside of Deer Hunter with Chermino, I have very little knowledge. Oh, okay. Well, so the two films that really bring Michael Chermino uh, just to the forefront of one of the hottest directors. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot came out in 1974, had a $4 million budget, and it comes back and makes $25 million right out of the gate. So he's kind of a big deal as a director. Then The Deer Hunter in 1978 hits. It had a $15 million budget. It makes $49 million for the studio, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on to win five Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Christopher Walken, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. And it was also nominated for four other Academy Awards, including Best Actor for De Niro, Best Actress for Meryl Streep, Best Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. Mm. So those two films, and, and we'll talk about Michael Cimino as a writer, but from a director perspective, those two films really, you know, the studios are just handing him, you know, the the key to the studio, right? W- what do you want to make next? So yeah. he follows. Yeah, here comes his blank. Here comes his blank check. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you guys feel about Deer Hunter? Just a brief idea. How do you feel about it? I know Troy, you just picked up a 4K not too long ago, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm really curious to revisit it because it's one of those films that, um, and I don't know what year or time of your life when you kind of discovered film. I, I had always loved movies, but there was a point when I discovered film, if that makes sense. And Deer Hunter yeah. was one of the first that I remember watching. And the, the Vietnam sequences just stick out in my head, mm-hmm. but I got to be yep. honest with you. I don't remember as much about that film as I should. Yeah. It's always been one I've struggled with. I, I, the wedding scenes are like really long, right? Like that's yeah. the, yeah. the crux of a lot of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, they are definitely the beginning of what we are going to see in heaven's gate. Yes. Yes. But, yes exactly. uh, I, I like the film a lot, but it's always felt very bloated with a lot of good performances in it. Um, it, That's the best way I can describe it. It's beautiful to look at. It's, it's, it's kind of harsh at times. It's not the most rewatchable thing because it's kind of almost too harsh. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a lot of it. I don't always remember. And uh, it's one I have to revisit every now and then. And I always kind of come away the same way. I always kind of come away thinking, "Eh, I mean, it's really good, but it's, eh, I don't know, you know, I always come away with it thinking it's a much better performance piece really than a film. If that makes sense. Like, yeah, it does. Totally I think does. the performances are the thing that stand out more than say the actual film itself, which yeah. I know the performances make up the film, but to me, they definitely, it's like, no, this is a performance piece. It, yeah. It's again, I'm, I'm since I've gotten the 4k, I'm really excited to go back and watch it again because I think I've only seen it one time. And I remember watching it the first time and thinking, oh, wow, I, there, there's some just striking visuals. Uh, nothing is as tense as the Russian roulette scene. And I think yeah. that's the scene that I think everybody gravitates to for Walken's performance, which rightly so. I mean, he deserved an Academy Award for that. But I think it's also one of those films that when I was watching it, trying to find, okay, what are the classics that I should be paying attention to? 
I don't think I was old enough to understand it at the time because I remember seeing it like in my late uh, high school years and just mm-hmm. going, oh, I, I get the Academy Award performances, like you guys said. I, I'm not sure I understand what it's trying to say, per se. Yeah, yeah. I always tell people it's one of the good films of the 70s, not one of the great films of the 70s. Yeah, there are a lot of those. I will, I will, yeah, <laughs> I, I will say after watching Heaven's Gate, I'm curious to go backwards and yeah. see yeah. what what he did beforehand. Because um, I know, you know, directors all have a certain style and, like we said, like the wedding scene, sort of like, I think almost like an hour. So you're just like, oh, the groundwork has been set uh, in his previous <laughs> film. So yeah. uh, these, these, yeah. those three films, these three films, the film we're talking about, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot and Deer Hunter, feel completely like they're made by the same guy. Uh, I would throw Year of the Dragon in there just because I watched that yeah. the last few days. <laughs> it it yeah. feels exactly like a Chimino film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I can tell you, I've seen everything but Sun Chaser. And yeah, I was going to ask if anyone's seen Sun Chaser. No, yeah, I think that's I've the only seen everything I but that. And all of them feel you can say a lot of things about Michael Chimino, good or bad, but what you can't say is his films don't have a Chimino quality because they all have the same quality. Yeah, they do. And so we've already talked about a few of them. Heaven's Gate in 1980. So that's the film that comes after Deer Hunter. And from then on, none of his films have really made any money. So Heaven's Gate was a bomb. You're the Dragon from 1985, bomb. Sicilian 1987 was a bomb. Desperate Hours in 1990, bomb. Sun Chaser 1996, bomb. And huge last, bomb. yeah, it made like bomb. 21k. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he did it was a nominated. I think it was nominated for an audience award at Cannes. Oh, was it? Oh, probably. Yeah, yeah, probably. probably. Yeah, well, it was one of those weird things. But what the? Uh, oh, we, for the Palm, actually. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Sicilian, that's, that's a Lambert film, right? That's a Christopher Lambert film. Oh, see, I wasn't going to bring that up because here it comes. <laughs> Why did you do that? You, now it's Guess happen. I star in that movie. Yeah, see, there's. All right. Uh, and then the last right, thing. What you mean, though, and me are best Oh, friends. my God. See, now I just derailed. I thought we were doing an all guy. serious podcast here about an important film, and here comes Christopher Lambert. Get off my lawn, oh. Christopher Lambert. Um. Where was I, man? I totally. Oh, uh, let's talk about we're him. We're talking as a, about Christopher Lambert. Yeah, we were. <laughs> let's talk about uh, Michael Cimino as a writer. So Silent Running, 1972, worked on the screenplay for that. Magnum Force, 1973, Dirty Harry film. Uh, and then, of course, he's writing most of the film he's, he's directing at that point. Thunderbolt, Lightfold, uh, Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, You're the Dragon. He was uncredited for screenplay work on The Rose in 1979. So Interesting couple of other people we'll talk about behind the camera before Sammy. We're going to hear about the amazing cast in front of the camera. Cinematographer Vilmos Zygmunt worked on movies like McCabe and Mrs. Miller in 1971, Deliverance in 72, Sugarland Express in 74, Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 77, The Deer Hunter in 78, and Blowout in 81, a film that we talked about. So in terms With Sammy. Of- yeah, it's coming full circle. It's coming for one, one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. He, he is, and if you look, you look at the resume, especially what he was doing around uh, this time. You're period. leaving out his best film, Maverick. <laughs> Maverick. Yeah, I was trying to, I was trying to pick stuff that was coming out around Heaven's Gate time, but you're right. He, the guy has an amazing filmography. Uh, he's fantastic. I agree with Sammy's comment. Four editors on Heaven's Gate. Did did that throw you off a little bit? Four four people editing. No, not a big deal. Well, when you have 
two hours or 220 hours worth of film, Troy. It's going to take a lot of people to edit it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I would have guessed that if I didn't know that. I would have guessed that because of the cutting and the recutting and the pulling of the theaters. And I'd imagine they hired different editors the second time around. Um, yeah, I'd imagine there would be more than two. Well, and, and let's say Michael Cimino, when we talk about the stories behind the scenes, Michael Cimino should be credited as an editor because yeah. uh, he kept this from the studio trying to edit his own film. But even the editing uh, pedigree on this thing is pretty impressive. You got uh, Lisa Fruchtman, who won an Academy Award for editing on The Right Stuff. Gerald Greenberg, who won an Academy Award for she Best Editing. She also had to edit on uh, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. So just think from having to edit Apocalypse Now. And then I think she goes directly into editing uh, Heaven's Gate. Yeah. So, you know, you have Francis Ford Coppola and all his million hours worth of film. And then did he go back into Michael Cimino's, you know, almost you know, his 220 hours worth of mountain film. of film. Yeah. Man, just that is a task. 225 hours of footage. Is it's crazy. Right. Yeah. And then Gerald Greenberg. So he's an Academy award winner off the French connection. Then you have another Academy award winner, William Reynolds, who won an Academy award for best editing on the sound of music and the sting. He worked on a film. We just talked about last week. He was in one of the three editors on Ishtar. And then finally, Tom Rolf won an Academy Award for Best Editing on the Right Stuff. So he worked with Lisa. Um, but he also. All four editors have Academy Awards? All four editors have an Academy Award. Tom also worked on Taxi Driver for Martin Scorsese. So wow. the editing team, all Academy Award winning editors. Um, the couple other things I want to talk about real quick music by David Mansfield. I, I found this fascinating. David Mansfield. He's the guy that plays the fiddle on the roller skates in the film. So yeah. he did the music for the movie. He's also an initial member of Bruce Hornsby in the range. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, he's a, he's a lifelong musician. If, uh, if you're a big music fan, you've seen him in tons of things. He's yes. played with Dylan. He's played with Bruce Hornsby. Uh, he's just, he's a, one of these people who grew up playing music and has always played music and uh, super talented guy. I mean, super talented. Yes. I agree. Arguably one of the, one of the best parts of the movie is the music and he kind of repurposes classic arrangements and uh, it's pretty amazing what he does. I, I agree. I, I would say one of the highlights of the film definitely is the music. It, it was impressive. It's impressive to see a guy play a fiddle on a roller skates by itself. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So I can't even pick my nose and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and here's another callback to an episode you did with us, Sammy uh, stunt coordinator, buddy Van Horn, who we, we talked about in length when we talked about Clint Eastwood's The Deadpool from 1988, which is, we've said this over and over again, 1980 is probably one of the best films, uh, film uh, years in film history ever, right? Mm -hmm. So before we talk about all of the stories about development and production, Sammy, I, when, I, when I see the cast list of Heaven's Gate, I think of the GGTMC. Because I think you've probably talked about everybody who's in this film at some point, so you wanna you wanna kind of do the rundown here and and let's talk. Well, about I cast. mean, I'd say everybody wanted to work with Chimino. I mean, in Hollywood, it's known that if you you know direct a best picture, uh, people are gonna come to you. Yeah, you're gonna kind of have your pick in a lot of ways. And uh, I find it interesting that he went with uh, Christopherson in the lead. Now, Chris Christopherson's a 
a great kind of 70s icon, not so much just for cinematic purposes, but also for songwriting purposes. He's written some of the the great country Western songs, uh, great songwriter, kind of a poet laureate type uh, would be the best way to describe him. I'm always, of course, he's tied very closely for me to Sam Peckinpah. So there's this kind of this romanticism with him, this kind of romantic, and I mean this in the best way, this kind of romantic alcoholism slash woe is me type country western type stuff that you know the old the western dying the old west dying kind of like he's part of that like johnny cash and yeah you know these kind of darker kind of country stars that came out of the 70s during our youth you know merle haggards and chris christopherson johnny cash uh, johnny cash was around before then but he kind of repurposed himself uh kind of like hank williams jr did too and the end of this kind of rowdy uh kind of hell raising uh country western star yeah more rebel uh, rebel rock a little bit yeah, I, f- I find it kind of interesting. Of all the people in the cast, that one is quite risky. And I, I, maybe not, because in the 70s, Christopherson's a pretty big deal. I mean, he he did uh, The Star is Born with uh, Barbara Streisand, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he comes off a convoy. Didn't he do that in the 70s, Star is Born? I, I feel like it was the 70s. Maybe it was the 80s. I can't remember. No, 76, I believe. Yeah, because he. Uh, a lot of people claim that this film ruined his leading man career. Um, that he was trying so hard to uh, make <laughs> happen. But I, I don't know if that, that was ever really the case with Christopherson. Never really felt that way with me. Uh, he's come up, a, he'll come up a million times in all kinds of movies, usually playing a heavy nowadays. Uh, or uh, the great uh, kind of little performance he's got in Blade, right? Uh, which I was just reminded of because I just bought the 4K. Yeah. He's Whistler or whatever that guy's yeah. name is. Yeah. yeah. He's great in that. And that little performance he's got in there is this kind of. Uh, teacher slash father no you're of, you're right uh, about him in the late 70s i mean starborn was 76 semi-tough was 77 convoy 78 yeah. i mean yeah those are, forgot sorcerer freaking sorcerer wasn't he in that no no he wasn't nope. in that i don't think he was in that one no. oh no i think he did he turn that down or something i saw where i thought where he turned it down to be in something else he might have he 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 ponied up to sam peckinball they became friends and uh carousers for lack of a better word did pat garrett and billy the kid which is a complicated and problematic film some love it some hate it uh i recommend people check it out but he's in bringing the head of alfredo garcia a little bit he works with scorsese in a really great performance and alice doesn't live here anymore. oh that movie's fantastic man yep. yes yeah which is a good one um and then you know like a star is born sailor the sailor who fell from grace from the sea which has its fans semi-tough's a football movie if i'm right uh yep Shake Tiller, if I remember the name correctly. Shake Tiller. <laughs> I, and I would say it was early 80s he was doing theatrical, but wasn't it like late 80s he started going to like TV films? TV. I mean, he's always yeah. been acting in some yeah. aspect. So, yeah. And then he kind of just jumped into B movies and, and everything. And, you know, yeah. like he's the heavy in the Steven Seagal movie. Yep. Maybe the last good Steven Seagal movie, some would argue. <laughs> or at least halfway watchable Steven Seagal movie, if you want to consider him playing guitar. Hey, man, all my movies are good. <laughs> We're getting a cavalcade kind of, of voices. Kind of, yeah, I was kind of dangling it out there, waiting for the impression to come through. <laughs> we got uh, we got uh, uh, Seagal and Lambert on this episode. There you go. <laughs> but uh, you kind of shift gears. You go to Christopher Walken. Now, for me, this is my favorite Christopher Walken performance. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, I love this one because he's he's heartbroken, he's sad, he's romantic, and he's evil as shit. And 
he's everything that I've always liked about Christopher Walken. He can do it all. There's always something a bit off about him because of the way he delivers dialogue. And obviously he's become a huge caricature of himself, but here he's, you, you almost have moments where you feel for him. And that's very important for a heavy in a movie. Yeah. Um, because that changes the whole dynamic of the story you're watching is when you're heavy. Cause our introduction to Christopher Walken, it, it's one of the great character introductions. <laughs> in my opinion, it's one of the great, I mean, I wouldn't consider it like top 20 or nothing, but I mean, it's pretty great. Could be I, his, I mean, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the thoughts of the film, whether or not he is a heavy or if he's yes. just another tragic hero kind of thing. But I, I agree yeah. with you. Your introduction to Chris Christopherson as a character versus Christopher Walken, who <laughs> at the end of the runtime, you're supposed to feel for both of them. If if you were to kind of take a survey at the beginning of the film, you're like, well, that guy's scary as hell. This other guy can get behind, but there's no way I'm going to like this other guy. So yeah. uh, we get John Hurt in here. John Hurt, obviously, probably mostly known for most American movie fans as the impregnated alien victim yep but uh huge uh you know for me growing up in the elephant man i was yep. always fascinated by there that this actor was underneath all that makeup and uh maybe one of the greatest character actors of all time v for yeah. vendetta he's big and v for vendetta yeah. oh yeah yeah i mean this guy that guy worked up until his death and i mean yeah talk about a filmography i mean i can't even begin to if we want to sit here and go through everybody's filmography, we're going to be here all night. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's a huge a cast. There's tons of people there's, in this thing. Yeah, there's no way. And everybody here has like tons of credits. Yep. Uh, Sam Waterson, who's mostly known as a TV actor nowadays. He's almost unrecognizable in this film. He's so young Stash. in this movie. Yeah. 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 Uh, but mostly, I would say most people would know him from Law & Order nowadays. Um, yep. He was on that show, or maybe he still is on that show, for all I know. <laughs> Seems like it never goes off the air. Brad Dorff who I think you guys, have you guys talked about him before in something else? We may have. Come up. I think so. So I think he's one of America's great underrated actors, in my opinion. Uh, he usually always plays some kind of off kilter, maybe slightly more off kilter character than Christopher Walken plays, but he's really good in everything he does. Nobody can ever say Brad Dorff doesn't give 110% in anything. He does. <laughs> he's almost un unrecognizable in this film. Like, it took yeah. me a while to, f before I was like, oh, my God, th there's Brad Dorff. I yeah. didn't recognize him at first. Yeah. We get uh, Isabel Huppert or Herpert, Hubert. I don't know. I think it's Huppert. I, I, I'm not sure. So this is this is one of the most pivotal parts of casting because this casting of her, she's young. She's uh, kind of coming off a few things. She's a French actress. Chimino really fights for her, and the studio really is not happy about it. Yeah. And things start to fall apart for him quickly, pretty much with the Isabel Hooper ca casting. Now she's been great in a lot of things over the years, but recently she was in one of my favorite films about three or four years ago called L where she it's a Paul Verhoeven movie where she plays a rape victim who gets revenge. And it's kind of from the female perspective. She owns a video game studio. It's the most bizarre thing in the world, but uh, it's pretty great. If you haven't seen it, it's a great Verhoeven movie. It's very underlooked. Check okay. it out. Um, it's very Verhoeven. You, <laughs> You will not, you will know immediately. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Joseph Cotton pops up in here. One of the uh, actors who's been in arguably some of the greatest films of all time. Yes. Uh, some would consider the greatest film, one of the greatest films of all time. A Philadelphia Story? Uh, well, <laughs> you name it. Joseph yeah. Cotton's been in a lot of great movies. He's been in a lot of bad movies, too. It, yeah. In the 70s, he started getting into some pretty bad stuff. But he's been in a lot of great stuff. Uh, too many numerous ones to mention. Probably the third man is probably one of the big ones. And 
He's really great. And I think he's in the Magnificent Ambersons, which uh, is the one that nobody really talks about as much as Citizen Kane. It's still great. Well, he and Orson Welles were good friends. Yeah. yeah. I was going to yeah. say, he's just about in everything Welles did, right? Yeah. Yeah. They were real tight. Jeff Bridges is in here. If you don't know who Jeff Bridges is, that's, <laughs> you know, Jose should come on right at this moment and pop in and just tell us all the Jeff Bridges roles because he's got a whole shelf in his uh, yeah. library dedicated to Jeff Bridges. Um, but uh, he's very young here as well. Almost arguably almost right unrecognizable at times as well in this film um he's really good in a small well a smallish part um but man jeff bridges so many great performances over the years Starman. uh i i can't even i mean there's so many of them <laughs> i agree Which Star- tell you one i think recently that i think is fantastic is hell or high water oh, he yeah. is amazing in that movie I yeah, really great. liked him in the Coen Brothers uh, True Grit. True Grit, yeah. I yeah. loved him in that. So, yeah, yeah. But Starman is the one that I, when you say Jeff Bridges, if you're talking like association, Starman's the one I go to. Um, is that the first one that always comes to mind for you? I, it is. I, I think that's when I kind of remember, I, I don't want to say discovered him, but it was like, oh, I know that actor because of Starman, because of how many times I watched Starman growing up. Right. So, yeah, I know a lot of people would probably say, the big Lebowski. The big <laughs> that was, that'd be for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, that that's a huge one, right? I mean, it's a, it's a big deal, uh, but he's been in so many great movies. I mean, I just, I, I mean, I, I can't even. Tony Stark tell was able to make this in a cave. <laughs> I, I think that might be like yeah. when he is gone, hopefully not anytime soon. That's going to be the line I remember the yeah. most. The first movie that Out of always, all of his roles, <laughs> the first movie that always comes to mind for me with him is the 70s King Kong because that I was oh, that's so right. in, yes. yeah, I was so in love with that film when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I, as time's gone on, it's aged differently for me. And probably the last picture show comes to mind more quickly than anything else. But man, King Kong was a huge part of my childhood. So well and and I, I remember King Kong, but I don't remember Jeff Bridges as much as like Starman or Tron is another oh, yeah. one. I, I love Tron too. So Charles uh, Grodin's very memorable, very memorable in King Kong. He's such yes. a jerk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's such an ass. I agree. Movie. I agree. Uh, several other folks in here. I mean, I don't know how far you want me to go, but Paul Coslow's in here. He's worked with Charles Bronson several times. He was in the mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Majestic. Um, he's Mickey Rourke. <laughs> yeah. Mickey Rourke's in oh, here. Jeffrey Lewis is in here. That shocked me to see Mickey Rourke. Yep. He was yeah. young. Yep. Yeah, he's got a little bit of a part in here. I guess uh, Chimino didn't get along with Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe's in here as well, but you can kind of see him in the background. I don't think oh, he's got any oh, lines. Oh, hey, Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're getting all <laughs> the impressions. three for three, yeah. Like, yeah, there you we're go. getting all the impressions this week. We didn't get the Bronson yet. We didn't get that one. Oh, yet. yeah. <laughs> Blamo. There you go. <laughs> Blamo. <laughs> uh, yeah. Terry O'Quinn pops up with yes. hair, yeah. uh, which is always uh, a bit interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know how far you want me to go, man, because... Uh, there, there's probably a few more character actors that pop up here and there. I don't know if there's anybody else you want to mention. No, those are the big ones. I mean, to your point, the amount of actors and actresses in this film is staggering. Oh, we, we should mention Tom Noonan's in here. Tom oh, yeah. Noonan. oh, yes, that's Tom right. Noonan. Tom Noonan. Yep. Yeah, we definitely should mention him because he's a bit of a cult actor, no doubt. Yeah, so, it's, it's crazy. From last action hero. And there's evidently other people popped up in this film as well. Evidently Sam Peckinpah's in the background somewhere. And uh, stuff. I've never been able to spot Peckinpah. I don't know if he got cut out or not, but I've never been able to spot him in there. But like you said, in this around this time, if you're a best director 
and your picture also won best picture, people essentially line up at your door to be in your movie. Um, yeah. And then we think, can see it here. I mean, yeah, there's I there so many that. people in this movie. Yeah, I think there was that. And then I also think that news got around in Hollywood that this movie was out of control. And I think at some point people just started showing up. <laughs> yeah, You know, out of 220 hours, there's probably 50 actors, actresses that are in this film that didn't make the final cut. I mean, Clint Eastwood's probably in it at some point. Yeah. Uh, John, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I mean, uh, he offered the movie to just about every big name you can think of. And I'm sure he could have got it. I mean, at that point yeah. he was, he was handing money out from the studio. Yeah. Um, well, that's a good segue. I know, I know him and him and De Niro had a real good relationship, and I, I know he wanted not so much De Niro to be in this in the lead, but I know right. he really wanted De Niro again. But I mean, I don't know where De Niro would fit into this movie. And of course, you know, at this point, he's in Raging Bull, so he's full on sixty pounds heavier De Niro. You know, so he's not going to come make. Yeah, this I don't. Movie. I couldn't imagine De Niro in anything. Would he played like the Nate Champion role? Maybe. Maybe. Strong, Ooh. silent type would probably be yeah. the best. Yeah, I don't know. Be. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it, it's a good segue because before we talk about our reactions to the film, we have to share some stories about the <laughs> development and production because oh, you're going to talk about Heaven's Gate. You're, you're going to talk about the behind the scenes, right? Um, Sammy, you talked about this. I don't have, there's a book out there, Final Cut by Stephen Bach. Yeah, he's I, one of the producers on this film. Okay. I'm so curious to read this. I wish I had time to read the book before talking about this, although that would probably turn this into like a 10 hour podcast. Yeah, it's one of the few books I haven't read about a behind-the-scenes catastrophe, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say I haven't read it. I need to check it out, too. Yeah, um, so I'm sure we've heard tons of stories. I'm going to stick at high level, jump in at any point in time with like, oh, I heard this crazy story. So <laughs> just to give you, a, 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 I don't know, an idea of the chaos that was going on behind the screen. So, Brad, you talked about this. The initial budget started at you know $7 million. And to give you an idea of how quickly this film derailed, according to the legend of Heaven's Gate, I feel like we're sitting around a campfire. By the sixth day of filming, the project was already five days behind schedule. Yes. So <laughs> that, that part doesn't blow my mind as much as by the fifth day of he only had like a minute and a half of usable footage. Yes. After that five days. I was like, oh, my God, somebody get in there quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shooting an entire for five days. I mean, so here's on a per on a per day basis. This uh, movie costs two hundred thousand dollars on a per day basis. Yeah, that too. So here's here's an here's a prime example um, of Chimino and, and sort of his attention to detail. He they there was a street built to his precise specifications and it had to be tore down and rebuilt because it reportedly didn't look right. The street in question needed to be six feet wider. So the street had to be six feet wider. The set construction boss said it would be cheaper to tear down one side and move it back six feet. But Chimino insisted that both sides be dismantled and moved back three feet, then reassembled. An entire tree was cut down moved in pieces and relocated <laughs> to the courtyard where the Harvard 1870 graduation scene was shot. Chimino had an irrigation system built under the land where the major battlefield scene would unfold so that it would remain vividly green to contrast with the red color. So there's a couple of examples of just the construction and everything else and the waste that was going on at the time. 
So we've already talked about the 220 hours of footage that he shot, which is like 1.3 million feet. And I think, Brad, you talked about the studio spent approximately $200,000 per day in salary locations and acting fees. Trying to find some really good. Oh, uh, United Artists at some point considered firing Chimino and replacing him with another director. So I, I think that happened several times during production. John Hurt reportedly spent so long waiting around <laughs> on the production for something to do that he went off and made The Elephant Man, which came out in 1980 for David Lynch in the interim. And then came back to shoot more scenes on Heaven's Gate. Uh, let's see. The film was uh, marred with accusations of cruelty to animals during production. Lots of stories around that. Uh, what else, did you guys read any other things? I, I got some like post-production stories, but anything during the filming of that you thought was kind of crazy? Uh, uh, animal cruelty has always been a big part of this movie. Yeah. Uh, a lot of horses, not a lot of horses, but quite a few horses, a few anyway. I think three or four died during the making of this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did a lot of those uh, horse falls in this film, and of course, there's uh, one that is brutal to yeah. watch. Yeah. And the cockfighting scene is. I'm sure some one chickens like, got damaged yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some chickens got killed, and uh, you know, I mean, obviously, I, 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 you know, 1980, maybe the height of animal cruelty on screen. Yeah, <laughs> as, as terrible as that is, say, Cannibal Holocaust is the same year, I believe. So. Uh, you know, a lot of standards were put in place after that. Um, you know, just lots of takes. That's another thing that we should mention is that it seemed like Chimino became overly obsessed. I mean, he's not the first director to be a jerk. I think Brad's talked about this before in the past on the show. And he won't be the last director who, you know, there's a lot of pressure on these guys to put these things together. But he certainly had some moments that uh, were questionable during this movie where, you know, what are you doing? The... the Tom Noonan claims he pointed guns at actors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, this, which, this, you know, especially now after like the rust stuff, like yeah. just knowing like pointing guns at people on set, is just mm, makes gives shivers up my spine. Yeah. There was, I was reading something where uh, Chris Christopherson had to do a take like 52 times. Yeah. Literally that part of the movie is one second of screen time. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. It's not it's one of those things. It's like, hey, maybe we pick our battles. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> oh, evidently there yeah. was that huge city set, um, like the square, the like the yeah. town square, whatever. Yeah, that whole right side wasn't to Chimino's liking, so they had to tear down the whole side and rebuild it. Yep. So we talked about that. That cost like one one point two million dollars yep. just down the drain. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like what I mean. I, look, one of my favorite filmmakers of all time is Stanley Kubrick. He's one of the most obsessive filmmakers. Oh yeah, to ever worked. Um, he is notorious for 50 and 60 and a hundred takes of a scene, but this goes to a level that you have to wonder if either Chimino thought he had reached the apex of his career and he knew he was getting in over his head or if he had just lost, if it's just megalomania, if it's just, you know, I have to imagine uh, it's the latter, like it, his ego yeah. got in the way and yeah. He knew like it's best. like a physical illness at this point, you know, Yeah, <laughs> our mental illness, certainly. And it didn't stop there. So as soon as they're done, you get into post-production and then there's another ton of stories that come out as they're just trying to put all the footage together. So reportedly during post-production, Chimino changed the lock to the studio's editing room, <laughs> prohibiting executives from seeing the film until he completed his cut. Right now, Chimino, how long was that cut? 
Well, Chimino disputes this story, but on June 26, 1980, Chimino previewed a work print for executives at United Artists that reportedly ran five hours and 25 minutes, which Chimino yeah. said was about 15 minutes longer than the final cut would be. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> don't That's worry. Don't worry. I'm going to cut off about 15 minutes of yeah. this. Don't worry. So executives flatly refused to release the film at that length and once again contemplated firing him. However, Chimino promised he could re-edit the film and spent the entire summer and fall of 1980 doing so, finally paring it down to its original premiere length of three hours and 39 minutes. So it's 219 minutes. Now you you hinted at this, Brad, and I think this is my favorite story about uh, when it premiered. Okay, so during an intermission at the film's November nineteenth, nineteen eighty premiere at New York Cinema One Theater, the audience was so subdued that Chimino was said to have asked why no one was drinking the champagne. He was reportedly told by his publicist because they hate the movie, Michael. <laughs> I love that. And, and so you would think, so you're a huge, you know, you're a director, you have this huge ego, you're going to your premiere and someone comes along and says, because they don't like your film, Michael, you would think at that point in time, you're like, oh, maybe, maybe I am just an asshole. You know, like I would hope at some point in time, there's this realization that like, oh, all the art that I make isn't great and people aren't just going to worship me for it. So I, I don't know. I, I Sometimes I, I, I want to believe in, in karma. Um, Chimino yeah. has done some great work, uh, but again, uh, it, it, it goes with that sort of CEO mentality, director mentality. You have to have some sort of gene to really want to be in charge. And I think there's good ways to do that. And there's bad ways to do that. You said Stanley Kubrick was notorious for that. Yes, yeah, like notorious asshole. Um, yeah. But... I think people have a different level of respect for him. And I don't know if it's just because he really didn't make a bad film or what it was, but people kind of give Kubrick a pass on, on, on that. Um, I know there are, are actors uh, that hate him, um, yeah. but I don't know. I, I would just like to think at some point in time, maybe Chimino came to the realization that he was not untouchable. <laughs> the, uh, one of my favorite stories behind the scene. Let me let me let me get on that a little bit. I think it's his flippant behavior that hurt Chimino. There's a, there was an the difference between him was Stanley Kubrick was arrogant, but arrogant and private. Yeah, Chimino seemed to be. I mean, it's always a bad sign when the director shows up wearing a scarf. That's <laughs> ascot. That's <laughs> There's a lot of pictures of Chimino with a ball cap and a scarf on. And uh, that's always well. So one of my favorite stories in this whole thing is uh, Stephen Bach and Chimino arguing over Isabel Huppert and them saying that she's so uh, Bach saying that she's so unappealing that the audience is going to wonder why Chris Christopherson and Christopher Walken weren't fucking each other instead of her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh Chimino told him. Chimino told him to go fuck himself. <laughs> wow. So he just told his boss to go fuck himself. So I mean, that's the kind of that's what's going on here. What's yeah. going on here is rebellion and I won the Oscar. It's the ugly side of Hollywood and the press got a hold of it. And we all know all of us 
we love the juice when it comes out like that. We yeah. love hearing the stories of Kevin Reynolds and Kevin Costner arguing and sets falling apart in Waterworld and it's going to bomb. It's going to be terrible. It's $200 million. There's a part of us that loves that. Uh, whether we like it or not, there is a part of us that likes to read that stuff, right? Well, it, yeah, it, I mean, we, we love to look at a car wreck. It yeah. makes you know? it, those kind of stories, I think, make Hollywood at some way relatable to you as the common person because you're yes. going around looking at like all the stuff that you got to deal with and things that don't go right and your budget and everything else. And when you see, you see these stories come out of Hollywood, you're like, Oh, well I want to read about that because that part of it's relatable. The making a billion dollar profit is not relatable. The yeah. losing <laughs> money is probably more <laughs> relatable to us because we we've watched our money go out the door. Right. Yeah. Let me tell you about some bad investments. <laughs> I've got some. Well, yeah. And so the film here, here's the big impact it had for the studio, right? So the film's $44 million cost and poor performance at the box office generated more negative publicity than actual financial damage causing Transamerica corporation United artists, corporate owner, because that's the ones who kind of own the film and released it to become anxious over its own public image and to abandon film production altogether. In 1981, Transamerica sold United artists, um, to Kirk Kerkorian, who also owned Metro Golden Mayor, so MGM, right. which right. effectively ended the studio's existence as an independent studio. So basically, United Artists becomes a subsidiary of MGM. And while the money lost due to Heaven's Gate was considerable, United Artists was still having a lot of success and a steady income from franchises like James Bond, The Pink Panther, and the Rocky series. Um, but on the other hand, UA was already struggling after the executive walkout in 1978 and they had a bunch of major box office flops in 1980, including cruising foxes and roadie. So it was a combination of heaven's gate plus those bombs where they pretty much gave up and just kind of sold themselves to MGM. That was the damage done. Cruising is another great example of a director going haywire behind the scenes too. Yeah. He had two sorcerer and cruising about that time yeah. period yeah. where yeah. he had full creative control and, and spent a lot of money and they just really didn't produce anything financially. Yeah. And this was kind of the nail in the coffin for the Western genre as well. I mean, after, after yeah. this, there's really not a big budget Western film for a long time. Yep. No, I mean, pretty much at this point, uh, Clint Eastwood is the lone man making Westerns and it uh, really doesn't kind of gain any real popularity again until Silverado. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, I mean, I, I can count on one hand, the number of, of Westerns I've seen in the theater in the last 15 years, it's three ten the Yuma. Yeah. I think true grit. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's an interesting genre because it's kind of have a rebirth in uh, low budget fare right now mm-hmm. and they're not good, but that means maybe the genre's coming back. Maybe we'll see oh, I hope the so. Western again. Yeah. yeah, I hope so. I hope so. It's it's a great American, regardless of how you feel about the John Waynes and all this kind of stuff. I know all this stuff's problematic now, but it's a great American film institution, the, the American Western. It's one of the things we do really well as far as film goes. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of interesting stories that can still be told within that genre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about this a little bit, but I just want to give you the extent of how many times this thing has been under the chopping block. So the work print cut, we talked about this 325 minutes, right? So Jesus. that was for executives in 1980. 
The initial <laughs> oh. premiere release, 219 I minutes. I would have loved to have been in that five hour and 25 minute oh, cut though. Ah, me too, man. <laughs> Um, so there was a third cut. There was a director's second edit, which was 149 minutes, and it was released in theaters April 1981. You can find that cut on DVD in France and the Netherlands. There is what's called the radical cut. It was 219 minutes. And that was the version that was put together for a special screening in Paris and New York in 2005. And then you've got the digitally restored director's cut, which is the 216-minute version. And that was restored in 2012 for the 69th Venice Film Festival, followed by the the Blu-ray disc release, right? Yeah. And I think the only difference between that and the 219 one is they cut out the intermission stuff. So it's essentially that that initial uh, release cut. So before we talk about thoughts on film, this, this is an award winner. And it was nominated for some prestigious awards. It actually was nominated at the Academy Awards for Best Art Direction and Set Direction. Makes total sense, right? Right. At the Cannes Film Festival, it was nominated for the Palme d'Or. And for the Golden Raspberry Awards, one of our favorites to talk about. So so in case people don't know, the Palme is like essentially the best picture. Yes, I it's the best picture yeah. category. At the Golden Raspberries, it was nominated for Worst Picture, it was nominated for Worst Director, Worst Actor for Chris Christopherson, Worst Screenplay for Michael Cimino, and this makes no sense, Worst Musical Score for David Mansfield. It won Worst Director for uh, Michael Cimino, and the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards when they were around, it was nominated for Worst Picture, Worst Director, Worst Screenplay, <laughs> Most Intrusive Musical Score, it was nominated. What? what? Yeah, um, and Michael Cimino swept that one for best director as well. So, or worst director, excuse me. So he won worst director for Golden Raspberry, and uh, the Stinker's bad movie. So listen, folks, we've spent like over an hour just talking about the mythos of Heaven's Gate, right? So this this is just a sample of all of the stuff that was coming out um, in terms of hype and hyperbole about the film even before it hit theaters. Yeah, and, and, uh, and before we move on, I think if people are interested, um, Sammy recommended that the Final Cut book. Yeah. Um, I think if, if if this interests you at all, and it does to me, um, especially when I have a break coming up, and I'm like, oh, I I wouldn't mind reading a book about uh, the production of this of this film. It's called the Final Cut. Uh, what's who's the author of that, Troy? Uh, Stephen Bach, I believe. Okay. Yep. Yep. So check that out if you're interested in in more information on this, because I know it goes into a lot of detail because there is a lot of stories and a lot of um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure a lot of these might be a little hyperbolic and things like that. But there there's a lot of stuff going on. And yeah. we I mean, Bach, Bach was there. I mean, he's yeah. the yeah. one that uh, told Christopherson and Walken to start making out. He's the one that made that. Situation. Yeah, but he also has an axe to grind with. Yeah. Yeah. Too. So, oh, yeah. I mean, there's they probably some, yeah, there's probably some bias in there, but. It would be still an interesting read. It, it's a big book. There's a lot of stories about behind the scenes yep. that are just crazy. So uh, this one, I got to be totally honest with you, out of all of the films um, that we've talked about, and especially the three that we have come together to talk about, after watching this film, I could have immediately recorded the episode right after that because I was <laughs> bursting at the seams, you don't, you don't know how bad it was to just hold it back in to yeah. go, guys, we we've got to talk about this right now. Now in hindsight, 
I'm glad that I had a little bit of distance between my viewing to kind of get my thoughts together. But, you know, full disclosure, out of all the movies that we've talked about, you and I, Brad, this for me is a top five where I just had that reaction where it's like, man, I have to talk about this movie with somebody because I watched it by myself. I couldn't get anybody to sit down for that. that <laughs> three and a half hours. Time. Yeah. So <laughs> nobody, nobody was buying into my family. Wasn't um, that three and a half uh, hour cut of the pest? Uh, yeah. Well, Tabula <laughs> sign up for that one, but, but uh, not a Western. So um, I'm going to start with you, Brad. This was now full disclosure. You watched it in two settings, so you broke mm-hmm. it up yep. two hours. Okay. Yep. So I, I want your initial read on this thing. I've been dying for days to hear you talk about Heaven's Gate. Yeah, so I, I think this movie has a lot of really impressive uh, tidbits going on. There's a lot of stuff to be impressed by. Um, one of the first kind of all moments I had was uh, when Jim – gets off the train he walks around and you see this town square and immediately i was like oh man like yes this movie is a bomb and they spent a lot of money but you can see this money is in these sets and um and the film does a lot of scenery shots that you're just like oh my gosh like this is it's almost like national geographic level just like here just look at these mountains and these guys riding these horses down these hills um and we're just gonna you know show how small man is in in comparison to the land and there's so much to like about this movie it's it's just so impressive on so many levels and then you got to sit through some of these scenes that just seem to go on forever and really don't do a whole lot for the story. Uh, they go to Heaven's Gate, which is in this world is a is a skate rink essentially. And there's a part where there's just a musical number, and they skate around for a while, and that's essentially the crux of the scene. Um, and that scene probably goes on somewhere between ten and fifteen minutes. Like it is long. Um, it really doesn't move the story along. I mean, it kind of shows that Jim and Ella have a relationship. Um, And then I was expecting, so when you think of a film that is over three hours long and you, and the story is relatively easy to understand, right? You got these guys that come in, there's a kill list for these, uh, essentially these foreign people that uh, these rich white guys don't like. Right. Um. But then there's a love triangle um, and there's all these other stories. Um, Jim and Billy have a relationship from Harvard that really doesn't go anywhere. I I was just thinking like for a three hour and 30 minute movie, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of plots that just don't really seem to go anywhere. And I guess in, in my mind, I'm thinking, course the longer the movie the more story we're going to get the more information we're going to get and that's really not the case i i know like runtime doesn't equal like uh fullness of story or whatever like that's not an equation that happens you can have a a long movie that doesn't tell a very good story um you can have a short movie that tells a great story um i was just surprised at how clunky everything felt 
Um, I had to go back. Like I watched this in two sittings and then today I was off work. I had to kind of go back and watch a few scenes again because I felt like it was just really weird how things came together. Um, so I never under, I never understood the Nate and Ella relationship. Like it, I, I felt like to me, it comes out of nowhere. Like, wait, Nate and her are in a relationship. I thought uh, Jim and Ella were, I thought they were married. I was like, yeah. Oh, they're married. Um, did, it, did splitting it, it up hurt that for you? Or is it just the, the enormous narrative that it tackles? Just, it's just the, the, all the narrative okay. going on. Um, because I, I will tell you, I stopped when the, essentially your, your, mayor, whatever he is, the guy with the black mustache wakes up the guy on the hill and it tells him, Hey, wake up. We're going to go. It's like at the two Oh six mark or something like that. Um, and then they gun him down and that horse takes that fall. And oh. I was like, that horse died. Like, I'm sorry, that horse that, that fell like is dead. Like I've oh. seen horses fall and they, they like, don't at get the racetrack <laughs> and yeah, they, you, a horse breaks his leg. It's done. Um, and that it, that definitely happened in that scene because that horse takes a spill and it is ugly. Um, I really liked a lot of this movie. I would say it's one of the best looking films I've ever seen in my entire life. I watched it, and some of the some of the scenes are just, I'm like again are awe inspiring. They they are just. It's nothing. I've I've seen nothing like this film before, and I like her. I read Roger Ebert's review this morning. He was saying how like muted and bad it looks. Yeah, and he he hated I, everything about this film. Like, and even I the didn't look see of it. that, and I don't know if that's now because you know I'm watching it in you know in all of its glory and it's restored and all that stuff. I don't know if I'm seeing the same as him, but if it is, like Roger was completely wrong. I think this movie looks amazing, but I. I think it's got a lot of problems. Um, I just think the story is really clunky and there's just a lot. Like, I, I don't know why Billy is in this movie. Like I could say that about like 15 characters in this movie. Like, I don't know why Billy is in this movie. I don't know why we spend so much time at the very beginning at Harvard in their graduation. Like I like the scene, but that's a half an hour of the movie that really doesn't matter. Um, it's just an overindulgence, uh, movie in every sort of way. Um, does that indulgence get in the way of you? So I know you keep talking about how much you like it from a visual perspective, Yeah. but does that lengthen indulgence sort of get in the way of you, uh, enjoying it holistically? I think, so I was trying to think like, and this is unfair because like Kurosawa is one of the greatest directors of all time, but samurai films and Westerns are, are basically cut from the same cloth. Um, and there are a lot of uh, samurai films that are indulgent and they kind of do the same thing where, you know, the, the lands play a big part and all this stuff. Um, I, I just, this one, I wanted to like it because it, it definitely has a lot of stuff going for it. I just, the barrier of entry and the story being told, I think, is just so – it's not complicated because it's an easy story. But there's just so much going on that I just can never get the right footing with it. But then there would be a scene that would come along and you're like, 
this is one of the best things I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, but then it would literally take all that goodwill away. The next scene, you're like, why, why are we, why are we doing this scene? That's 12 minutes long. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the love triangle, I think was another huge turnoff. So um, I, I applaud, like, like we said earlier, like Nate, who is the uh, Christopher walking character. The first time we see him, he just, murders a person and by the end of the film like i'm kind of sympathetic to him so there's some good storytelling going on but i don't i don't know man this one is i'm very sort of i'm being pulled in two different directions mm. equally as hard because i think this is one of the best movies i've ever seen like visually but one of the like just the execution on the story is cumbersome at best so Okay. That's kind of me in a nutshell. All right, Sammy. So this is your second, third viewing. You say you've seen this a couple times, right? I've seen a handful of times. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is the fifth viewing. Uh, it, it's, it's somewhere in there. Five, six, I, I'd imagine. I uh, didn't see this in theaters or anything. I don't, I don't, I don't have that claim. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say it <laughs> at our age. I don't think we were going to go and sit through a uh, three oh, and a no. half hour film. Um, yeah. at like nine, 10 years old. Okay. So Brad gave us the view of just seeing this for the first time in 2021, uh, has, has a mixed response to it. You're coming as an experienced viewer fourth, fifth time on this. What, what's your reaction to this version? So I had the same reaction Brad had the first time I saw this, I thought, man, this is a big bloated mess. Michael Cimino is overrated. All those things. Now, I do agree that there's way too much preciousness here going on display here. Okay. I mean, he is in love with every single thing he is shooting uh, to a degree that even Stanley Kubrick, who was alive at this time, probably saw this and was like, Jesus, dude, you know, <laughs> just pump the brakes, bro. <laughs> Can you imagine Stanley Kubrick saying that? Pump the brakes, bro. Oh, yeah. uh, but but seriously, I mean, it's just so precious, some of it, that it's like overwhelming almost. And I understand that. As time has gone on and I've watched it more than a handful of times, and I'm not saying that this justifies the film or anything. And, you know, a film should be viewed on its merits. You know, it's it's mostly for those of us who love movies, we'll go back and revisit things. Right. But a lot of people will see a movie once and that's all they'll ever see that movie. And uh, they might not ever see that movie again. That might be the last movie they ever watch. Um, this movie doesn't leave the kind of impression for a first-time watch that I think Michael Cimino tried to set out to do. Like, he was trying to make the movie of movies, uh, in my opinion. That's Now, this is just my take. But every interview I've read with him and everything else, like, he was trying to make, in my opinion the greatest cinematic piece of film ever created. <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with those goals. Uh, those are great goals to have. Unfortunately, he fell in love with his material a little too much, and he fell in love with the smell of himself too much, a little bit maybe might be the better way to put it, and he didn't know when to stop. And I have mixed feelings about it, but I weigh on the side of this thing being a, a kind of disastrous masterpiece in some weird way. Uh, I know those two words obviously don't go together, but they kind of do sometimes. The, 
I'm trying to think of something I can compare it to uh, film-wise. Oh, there's lots. But for me, this movie, like Brad said, it's one of the most gorgeous. I mean, I even said that when we were texting back and forth. I mean, you can say a lot of things about Heaven Gate, Heaven's Gate. What you can't say is the movie doesn't look great because this movie looks insane. Even by today's standard, this movie looks insane. The money's there. The uh, money is all yeah. on the screen. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. I, and I, I'll say this. If you've never seen this movie, if you're listening to this podcast and you've never seen this movie, I promise you, if you watch this, you will see things you have never seen before. <laughs> uh, it's just unbelievable what they pulled off. Um, of course, when you read all the behind the scenes stuff and everything else, you kind of see what he was going for and the perfectionism and everything else. So all of that stuff is there. The story is a bit jumbled, but I think as many times as I've seen it, I've come to grasp exactly what it's about. You know, one characters, um, and we, we kind of talk spoilers here a little bit, right? So oh, can, we talk spoilers yeah, all day long. Right. Yeah. So you got one character who's, so the, I think the whole point of obviously the whole point of the Harvard thing is the uh, optimism of youth. Yep. Right. And yeah, it's like, whole, go ahead. Jim is like the whole, like hit getting old is, is kind of in the background of this film. You know, we see him go through periods of his life. I mean, right. there's a reason why it ends the way it ends. Yeah. And they're making fun of old people. Uh, mm-hmm. John Hurt's character is actually getting up and he's actually making fun of, Cotton's character and and the the bourgeoisie or whatever you want to call it, and every generation does this. This is not something unique to just this generation. Every generation does this. My kid nowadays, I'll do something and my son rolls his eyes. And he's eleven. He's too cool for me. He's getting to be too cool for me already. So I mean, every generation thinks the other generation is old and stale and fogies and everything else. But these guys had the you can look at it as maybe opportunity. But they had the whole world in front of them because the United States was still developing. So there was a lot of opportunity for industry, a lot of opportunity for all kinds of things. Uh, like a lot of people, they probably got married young. Uh, we find out Chris Christopherson has a relationship otherwise. Obviously, it's a loveless relationship. Or at least I think it's loveless. I can't, I can't really get a grasp on that. Uh, it's certainly lustful. But that lustful kind of fanaticism is there with the girl and it's also there with the jobs and the country and the greed and all those things. Now, Christopherson's character is very stoic, very much the white hat, very much a humanitarian, right? I mean, he is, he's not only falling in love with this immigrant lady who she's French, by the way. And then I think all the other characters are some type of Slavic or Eastern European, right? Yeah. Pol- is it Polish? And so they yeah, have something like that too. Yeah. But he sees humanity. He doesn't see, right? He doesn't see a minority. He sees people coming to this country with the promise of what this country offers. So his character has a a glimmer of hope in him. But it's constantly, it's almost like a metaphor for America in a lot of ways because it's constantly beat down into him that America is for, in my opinion, this is what the film's trying to say. America is for the white man, the white man who is, established this, who's taken the country from the Native Americans that are here. We've educated ourselves. It's our right to own all these things. And the Native Americans are out of the way, but we don't want these other people coming in here either and getting in our way. 
Now, I understand the cattle barons being upset about stealing cattle. That's the same as stealing anything, right? That's that's their profits. I don't understand killing for it. No, never would understand anything like that. But I understand that they would want that to stop. But it gets into that class warfare thing that is so complicated and has really gone nowhere in all the years America has been established. You know, they a lot of us, a lot of our ancestors come from England to get away from all these things that they can't stand only to come over here. And the class, the class stuff is still here. It's still here. It's It's gone nowhere. There's still, you know, these people are better than these people. These people make more money than these people. These people are poverty, blah, 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 blah. We could go on for hours and hours on that. And I think this movie is a movie about the division of class and how if humanity is just there, if people just look at people on the surface for what they are, two eyes, a nose, two ears, not color of skin, not where you come from, not what you eat. Not the fact that you like to hang out at the rolling rink, <laughs> you know, with the guy with the unibrow. I mean, you know, yeah, teach their own. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's 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 a very this movie's very cruel, but at the same time, it's very heartwarming. It's a very strange film in that way. It really there's moments in this movie that I think are some of the best moments ever shot and directed by any American filmmaker. And then there's moments in here where I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, let it go. Move on. I love the roller rink scene, but I will agree with you that it goes on and on and on when it could have just done that for like a minute or two. You establish that everybody in town's hanging out and then you could have come back around to the waltz with Christofferson and Hubert, right? I mean, you could have, you could have totally cut that down, but again, that's not what Chimino's out for. Chimino's out to show you the biggest <laughs> story about the Johnson County war that you will ever see in your life. And, uh, I've come to love this movie and think of it as a kind of misunderstood masterpiece. And honestly, I think it's Chimino's best film. Uh, as time has gone on, everything that I've seen from him, I think this is his best film. I still think it's flawed. I think all of his films are flawed. But I think this is the best film he directed and the best film he wrote in his career. And... Uh, I just think he went about it everything the wrong way to get it made. Like it's 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 amazing the stories you hear. It's like, dude, this <laughs> it's like the Trump presidency behind the scenes or something. You know, it's like <laughs> shut your mouth, man. Uh, it's just it's this weird thing that I, I'll never understand. It's almost like self destructing destruction in some weird way. But man, I. I I watched it in two settings as well, but that's because I've seen the films a handful of times and I just didn't have the time to sit down and watch it in one setting. But I get caught up in this thing every time I watch it. I do. I get caught up. I don't like waltzing. I get caught up in that scene in the beginning every time. I get caught up in the roller skate, uh, skating rink. I get caught up in Christopher Walken riding across the landscape. I get caught up in all of it all over again. And it's just, it's it's gorgeous. I mean, I, I I sound like I'm gushing. I do like it a lot. I do think it's very flawed, but man, what a movie. I mean, I can't <laughs> believe this thing got made. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's one of the things I always walk away from. I'm like, Jesus. I mean, maybe that was the whole purpose of Chimino's career was to make this thing that honestly, I don't know if a film like this will ever get made again. I, it nope. definitely will not ever get made. <clears throat> no. no. I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's like that. It's like, this is the last time you will ever see this much money. On screen, I think you'll you'll ever see that much control from a director at that scale. 
Yeah. Before before you go, Troy, I do want to think because we talked about this earlier, and I think it's a good plot point. Is this is we were talking about the kind of the last big Western um, made, um, and it's funny that the cowboy in this has actually been turned into the villain in a way. So this is very anti-Western for being a Western. Uh, you know, the cowboy conquered the West and now the cowboy is now turned into the villain and is turned on the Im- immigrants coming into this country. So it's interesting that, you know, in 1980, this film comes out pretty much marks the end of big Western films and it, turns the Western kind of tropes upside down. So it's interesting in that way too. Yeah. It's also interesting that you got the Troy picked the postman and this film <laughs> and these films are so kind of synonymous with American culture. Yes. It, it, it's very interesting. I, you know, I, I'm always fascinated by, you know, happy accidents like that. It's just, it's very interesting to me because the postman and this both share a level of patriotism. Um, and anti-patriotism as well complicated patriotism I think that I think there's one common theme between both and it's patriotism is complicated yeah yeah there's no easy answers yeah um yeah but I'll I'll, 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 I'm I'm interested here with Troy thanks because I know it was his first time seeing it yeah so full disclosure coming into this when I talk with people who has seen this before I get the reaction that Sammy just gave, which is, oh my God. And and they will gush over it in terms of it's one of the great American Westerns. It's one of the great films that come out, you know, late, I, I guess you would say late seventies, early eighties. I mean, there, there was that time period where it was, it was the last great American films coming out from some of these high profile directors. Yeah. And then the other view I get is when you read about it, it's a lot of what Brad said, because initially, if you read about this film, critics have a rough time giving it praise. And even those that do, um, they will talk about all of its strengths, but have no problem kind of pointing out its weaknesses and and kind of give that assessment that Brad gave where they're torn on it. Right. So it always comes into one of two camps is, well, here's the history of it. And a lot of times that overshadows the film itself. And then you get people who have experienced it a couple of times and are like, yeah, this is a masterpiece. So I'm, I'm coming at it through both of those. And my intent, because I started to watch it on like a Tuesday night at 8 o'clock going, there's no way I'm going to watch a four-hour <laughs> film because I got to get up at 5.30 and, and head to downtown Baltimore. Um, no. it, it wasn't happening. It was, I'm splitting it up. There's no way I'm going to watch this thing. Right. So the movie starts with this speech at Harvard And it's this idealistic speech about how the cultivated mind needs to insert itself with the uncultivated and the importance of education. So, yes, there is, to your point, Sammy, this theme of youth and um, that whole portion deals with youth. But the first speech and really the first dialogue that comes out is this whole idealism about taking your education and kind of sharing it with the world. And again, the cultivated mind to the uncultivated mind. Then it goes on 
to an almost incoherent rambling speech from John Hurt, who is kind of making fun of it, saying, yeah, you're talking about that, but nothing's going to change. The sun's still going to rise, you know, um, in the east and set in the west. And I'm not going to go out there and do anything different. And he's poking fun of it. Right. And then you get a beautifully shot Walt scene and uh, an entire graduation ceremony. Right. So the first 25 minutes of the film is really about Jim and Billy graduating from Harvard. And so at this point, I was super worried about this film. I, I got I was sweating bullets because that 25 minutes, I, I'm like, man, this is a lot of spectacle, but it lacked any kind of direction. Like I had no idea where this is going. And if you watch the first 25 minutes and even see the movie posters and, and artwork for this thing, you're like, I'm I'm not getting it at this point. Where's so, the orchestra? Where's the orchestra in the auditorium? Yeah. <laughs> it's um, boom bastic, and you're like, and it gives you a 360 shot, and you're like, I don't see any orchestra in here. So that yeah. is, I I found that kind of funny. Well, it's it's yeah. grand in scale, but you're you're going. Yeah. I'm, I've almost spent half an hour at Harvard, um, yeah. and it was playing out exactly like the Vanity Project I had always heard about. Right? Yeah. yeah. All of a sudden, the movie ended. The movie's over, and I'm like what the hell? I, I, I sat and watched it all in one setting. I couldn't believe it. Like all of a sudden time just gone. Right. And then all of a sudden the first 25 minutes hit me because I was thinking about that. Like as soon as the film ended, my brain immediately went back to the first 25 and all of a sudden this message kind of came through and it was that cultivated mind and a few other key lines that showed up in the film that just um, it affected me like big time because all of a sudden this film became super important. Uh, and outside of that speech about the idealism that they're being sort of taught at Harvard, you get this line between Jeff Bridges and Chris Christopherson. And so Jeff Bridges says, it's getting dangerous to be poor in this country. And James, Chris Christopherson says it always was. That's his response. Yeah. So all of a sudden it kind of hits you. The haves will do whatever they want, whenever they want. They'll hide their transgressions behind cultivation and principle. Right. And those who realize this are left with the knowledge that they can't change it. So John Hurt is making fun of it at the beginning but in fact, he's just really saying how it is. Like, this is how the world works. And that real that, that realization tears you up the yeah. older you get. And you start to see it clearer and clearer. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's an exchange between Billy and James. And Billy says, James, do you remember the good old days? So this is John Hurt and Chris Christopherson. And, and so he says, do you remember the good old days? And Chris Christopherson says, clearer and better every day I get older. So, and what's crazy, that's not the worst realization. The worst realization out of this whole thing is it's super easy to keep the have nots in their place, like super easy. Cause all you have to do is grab their tongue when they come at you and then they can't bite you. And all of a sudden this trapper Fred story about him fighting a wolf barehanded, yeah. all of a sudden, it, you know, is this little comedy relief but then that hits me like right between the eyes. And I'm like, oh, my God, like I, it's all coming together. So all of a sudden I'm thinking, 
this movie becomes one of the most potent American social commentaries in like the 20th century. And on top of that, it is the most accurate, accurate social commentary in 1980 and 2021. And we're seeing, I'm just, as I get older, I'm like, Oh, holy shit. I've seen this play out time. It's worse days. And you can argue this worse now than it was in 1982. I don't even think so. I think it's always been this way, but you <laughs> think it's worse because you get older. And then Chris Christopherson ends the film in like this tragic prison with his wife on a yacht, remembering all of these experiences and coming to that realization in his old age about really how bad it is. And that patriotism is complicated. So what's amazing is the the bonus out of this entire thing is as a piece of film or a piece of art, this thing is bold, it's beautiful, and it's tragic. And I would say it's one of the best American films in the 80s. I was floored after I watched this thing. Just absolutely floored. And wow. I don't think there is actually any waste on this. Wow. I, th- I oh, think wow. that, I, I mean, I'm excited to go back and experience it again. And here's the thing. I, I'm not excited to go back and watch it again. I'm excited to go back and experience it again. Because I think the length of some scenes are supposed to be an experience. And it's supposed to drive home some of these theme, themes that Chimino is going for. The story is a bit messy because the narrative is messy. Real life is messy. Um, I don't, I think Chimino captured like life on film and art on film more so and an experience on film more so than just telling a traditional narrative of here's a love triangle and here's how these cattle barons came in and wiped out these people. And then, you know, Here's the tragedy and everything else. Yeah, that's a part of it, but I think it's intentionally messy. And I I think there is intent in every frame of this film. I, I don't I don't think Chimino, you you I would fall on the side of Chimino knew exactly what he was doing with every scene. And he had a specific vision of what he was trying to experience. Um, and it's all there. And if you can sort of crack the code to it, then I think it becomes very enlightening. Um, I'll, I'll give you an I'll give you an example. The musical sequences, like I, to this day, I'm still trying to kind of figure out why so many and what Chimino was doing, like with the dance hall, etc. And then it comes down to when I hear music, and especially music from my past, or just music in general. Music like suspends time, in my opinion, like my experience of music. It suspends time and lets you immortalize the moment. And in fact, it allows you as you get older to slow down that moment and relive things um, and take it in. And I think that's one of the things that he's trying to do with the dance hall or the waltz at the beginning, et cetera, is it's those characters time to kind of immortalize that moment to slow time down as they're getting older um, and to have that moment in contrast to what comes after it, what comes after it especially some of the tragedy that comes after it is um, heightened because of that musical interlude and that space that they shared with that music. So I think the, the, you know, we've talked about the heaven's gate roller rink sequence being, well, that's excessive. I think it's extremely important 
in terms of what the film is saying and that that moment is immortalizing the community and the bond that these people have. And for just a second, like the world or 12 minutes, the world doesn't matter outside of that. But when the world comes crashing down into it, it makes it that much more tragic. That's interesting because they, when they reconvene and talk about the death list, they talk about it in this place of safety, which is this rolling rink where they had this. That's an interesting take. I like that. And it goes on, it goes on. So him reading the list, it's not just him. So here's the other thing I love in, in today's modern filmmaking, he would go, I have a death list with 125 names. And then the scene would cut, right? But he starts reading the names and you're getting the reaction of these people finding out that there's a group of like a hundred and some odd guys who are traveling from Texas to murder them. And he yeah. starts listing these names and you get about 10 or 12 minutes of these people's reaction to realizing that there's like a, a government, a corporation that um, is intent on murdering them. And so that sequence, I was tearing up because it's taking place in the same environment where they had all of this love and youth and joy and they're experiencing the two extremes almost for the same amount of time in the same place. I think that is very intentional. Yeah. It's interesting. It's very interesting. You really got a lot out of this on the first. Yeah. Time. Maybe, I, I mean, I, I, I did not get, I, I was more like Brad on the first time I saw it. I really was. I was like, wow, this is a mess. Not, not, not Brad didn't say nothing terrible. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to quote you as saying that, Brad. But I, I just think I thought, wow, this is gorgeous and everything. But I don't know what's going on. I don't know why Billy's hanging out here and everything else. And then you kind of realize Billy's kind of like this. I don't know what they call that character, but kind of like this reflective character that helps the Christopherson character move forward in his story. Um, I don't know what they call that. In story. I, I think I think this has a lot in common with like a Shakespeare play. So John, John hurts character is almost like, uh, was it Rosencrantz and Guildenstern within Hamlet? So uh, again, John hurt has a very specific reason for being in this film from start to finish in that he is making com, you know, comedic, um, I don't know, speeches to parody the idealism that Chris Christopherson is buying into and here John Hurt is sort of playing that up as just a farce. And then yeah. throughout the rest of the film, he's making these snide comments and et cetera. It almost feels like a character out of Shakespeare that's commenting on the tragedy as it's occurring. And then yeah. he himself has a tragic moment. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it has Shakespeare qualities in terms of its narrative too. Because right. regardless of what you think of like how messy this is, then I would say, okay, well then Hamlet is pretty messy here, Henry, the, because it is so dense and there is so much being said here. And again, I don't know if it's much about like rich white guys. Um, you know, I don't know if the message is much as America's for the rich white man. I, I think by having like a European minority and having two white groups going at it, I, th- I think what, is basically being said here is that it's the powerful and it's the rich and those that are in a place of power will yeah. take their principles and, and they will use the cultivation and their education to make anything legal. I mean, there's, 
yeah. so many great well, in, lines in America. In, in America, we we relate rich with power. Yes, absolutely. Money is money is power here. So maybe me saying earlier, the rich white might might have been better off saying powerful, or as I said, the French word, the bourgeoisie, the the elite. Yeah, you know? I, I think you nailed it with the class struggle because I I I mean, race is the easy it's the easy visual way to go to it and say, well, it's the white man versus the minority. But when you take a step back, it's really about the education, the social class, the wealth, the power. That's what's well, I think play here. I mean, I think there's a reason why they picked Harvard. Like it's yeah. not just because it's a school. It's because it's, it's Harvard, what it stands for. Yeah. It's Harvard. It's, it's the yeah. school, right? Yes. I mean, in, yes. in America, Harvard carries weight. Yes. Yep. A lot of it. Now, Troy, do you think, and this is not me coming after you because yeah. of your age, but do you think you had that sort of reaction because you're a little bit older than I am and you've had a little bit more experience? Oh, 100%. Uh, I mean, I, yeah. I, I find it was, it was the comment I made about the deer hunter. I mean, this is not a film that I would want to introduce like uh, Angel or Cameron in, even though Cameron's like, oh, I want to, I want to experience Kubrick. I want to experience Scorsese, et cetera. To me, he can look at all of those and you could look at Heaven's Gate even and really appreciate it from a craft perspective and kind of look at the sets and the acting and the performance. But I think this is a film that needs maturity to view it to a certain degree. And you need and I don't even say maturity. That's probably not the right word. You have to have life experience, I think, in order to appreciate this film. You, yeah, I, I think 25-year-old Brad hates this movie. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I would say anybody who would look at this at a particular perspective and say, hey, I don't mind a grand spectacle film as long as it's giving me one message and it has a very clear and decisive voice in it, you won't enjoy this because there are several messages. And at the end of the day, you can I, – I would – argue that you can interpret some of the endings and some of the messages in various ways. And that's what makes it so good because it's so complicated at some point you go, Oh wow, it's really anti-patriotic In other fashion. I, I don't think it is. Um, and it, it really represents like what we experience today, but there are some themes that go through, which is this, you know, Christofferson is trying to do the right thing. Like you said, he's kind of the right. hero with this, I'm a cultivated person. I'm charged with taking what I know and taking it to the uncultivated or pushing it out there from an idealistic perspective and look at all of the things that are he's up against. But then I also look at that Christopher Walken character and go, well, this is a person I should hate right out of the gate. But by the time the film is over and to see the choices that he makes, I start to side with him and then his loss becomes tragic. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's like both the characters are protect are they're protecting an ideal. Yes. Idea of what they want. And what's interesting is Walken's character is kind of in the middle of it, in the thick of it in a lot of ways. But what's so interesting about the Christopherson character is he could walk away if he wants to. Mm -hmm. Like he could just he's rich. He comes from money. He could just walk away from all this. But he's such a humanitarian. Well, he does try. A, he does contemplate yeah. that. If, uh, it seems like sure. a few times in this film. Yeah, sure. as you would. As you would if you knew 100 people from Texas were coming to kill everybody. I mean, yeah. you would definitely have second thoughts. But I find those two characters very interesting and the relationship interesting and the fact that they love the same woman because 
they have an idea of what they want, which is this love, this, you know, this almost beautiful, serene, almost heaven-like quality of what life can be in the middle of this gorgeous landscape. I mean, it's just unbelievable the stuff that, that he got on film here. And uh, you know, and this goes back to those behind-the-scenes stories. You know, there'd be stories of him, the clouds would go over, and he'd wait for seven hours before he would fire yeah, the camera. Yeah, the right up. shot. The, mag- yeah. the magic hour or whatever they yeah. talked about, where it's like literally there's five minutes of where yeah. the light is perfect, and that's yeah. when they would do yeah. literally like... And you could see all of that, right? I mean, uh-huh. like he's sacrificing all this for that. And uh, but there's these ideals that they're going for. And of course, Walken's trying to get away from this life of violence, in my opinion. Uh, and what Christofferson seems to be wanting to get away is it's it's just he's one of the haves that identifies with the have nots. He's again, I, I keep using the word humanitarian. That's probably not the right word, but he just has empathy. He has yeah. something that and, and I shouldn't say that he just him because Walken has it too. I mean, there's moments. One of my favorite moments is when he sit, lays down on the bed and he says to Humper that Humper, I, 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 I can't ever get her name right. I love to watch you write figures. And she says, why? And he says, because it pleases me. It's such a simple moment, but it's an escape for him. It's an escape from bloodshed and violence. And it's almost like he's troubled with the whole process. It's like he, he he enjoys it and he knows that it's there and that's what he's there for. But there's also a part of him that wants the, you know, the quiet little cabin, the wife and, you know, the, the life of, you know, a quiet man. I think, I think there's part of him that wants that, which is a, a Western trope that goes all the way back to the beginning of Westerns. I mean, you know, the man trying to escape violence, you know, Eastwood would do that later on with unforgiven, right. Where he basically, you introduced to that character who could be the champion character after everything has passed. He tried to escape and his wife died and then some other bad things happened. So, um, yeah, man, I just, I love hearing Troy get so much out of it on the first time viewing. Cause of course I watched this on VHS the first time I saw it. So it looked like <laughs> crap. It was, if I remember right, when they released this the first time, they kind of released it with a deeper sepia tone, like you would with those old West pictures yeah. that you're taking, like when you go to Gatlinburg or something, you know? And, um, uh, that was on the videotape, if I remember. And I remember it was so muddy. It was so muddy. And I remember thinking, even then, the the, the exteriors looked amazing. But I remember losing track of who was who. Because this movie does have some natural lighting in it. And there's some moments when they're in cabins and things like that where it's kind of it's kind of hard to tell who's who sometimes. But it, this Blu-ray, totally different. Yeah. I, and I'll say this. like The walking character, for me, is probably one of my favorites out of this film. Because to your point, Sammy, he he wants to leave that life. But there's a point in the film, especially at the beginning, he thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks that, okay, it it's where that patriotism comes in, where he's getting upset about the, the well, immigrants. He thinks he's one of the good guys. He thinks he's yeah. one of the good guys. He thinks he's, you know, basically stopping thieves and wrestlers and everything else. But there's a point where when what his bosses are doing he starts to realize like the pain that it is incurring on the people that he loves. And he goes, well, I can't be a part of that anymore. And so he recognizes, you know, what he, what is right and what he really needs to do. And he pays the price for that. So right. I, I, I love all of it. And, and I, I, I like the fact that she doesn't choose um, Chris Christopherson. You know, she at at the point of the film goes, "I want to be with Nate. I want to be with this guy 
and not Chris Christopherson. So she's not um, choosing the path of the idealism and the protection that Chris Christopherson can provide. She's choosing, you know, Nate over all of that, which again, your first reaction is why it doesn't exactly make sense because I've been spending so much time with Chris Christopherson, because if you think about it again, it's very intentional. There's a shift. And Brad, you kind of said this earlier as I wrote this down, like your, your interpretation is Nate comes out of nowhere and all of a sudden he shows up, et cetera. I think that's intentional because your introduction to that character is very black hat, but there's a point where he shows up and he takes Chris Christopherson home, takes care of him, et cetera, comes back to her and you start to see up to that point, you see Chris Christopherson's relationship with her. And then the story changes and goes, well, let's see this relationship with Nate. And so again, it's a different side and you start to see Chris Christopherson being cold and turning his back on the community where Nate was doing that in the front. So it's weird. Chris Christopherson starts at one end of the spectrum and kind of comes to the right path. Um, or Nate does the Christopher Walken character. And that's how you experience that character. But then you experience in the beginning, Chris Christopherson being the idealistic young man and doing what's right. And he ends up in a place where he's just going to turn his back on everybody and be selfish. So they trade places at one point in the film for, for different reasons. And I find that fascinating because that's how that would happen. Um, Mm -hmm. So again, I, I fell in love with this film. I really fell in love with it. Well, so L has to, or Ella has to live with that choice of choosing Nate. Cause reluctantly something happens. He dies and is with Jim. And then she pays the ultimate price for that too. So it, her ultimate decision wasn't to be with Jim. It was to be with Nate, Yep. but that didn't work out. And ultimately she pays the price for that. And I, uh, I, I kind of dug the way the brutality of this film on all levels. It, it, it was no one really being safe at this time. Um, it, I don't know. Her death was uh, for a character that I don't know. She was, they, they do a lot of the stereotypical things with the woman character, right? Like there's a rape scene. You're like, okay, of course, of course there's going to be a rape scene. Cause that's what we do. Um, but she also picks up a gun and, and does things and is not afraid to battle. And all the, like a lot of the women in this movie will are, are willing to fight actually um, at heaven's gate. Some of the women were the, the loudest characters to say, no, we have to stand up for ourselves. Um, and and I, I, I like that. It's just, I, 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 I'm jealous of Troy for the way this, this film has impacted him because I didn't get any of that stuff. Um, now I think I liked it more as than I would have, if I was much younger, um, I could see myself hating this film a long time ago. Um, I, I want to, I want to be, um, kind of moved as much as you are, but I'm just not, Um, and I think the story just didn't hit me in the ways that it hits you. Now I see how it can, and your explanation was great. Um, the, the dog scene or the, the wolf scene where the, the dirty guy is telling the story to Mickey Rourke. Like, yeah, that makes total sense now. Um, and, um, 
So I, I wrote down this question for you guys. If if I said, okay, we're all going to take a day off and we can get a hold of the five hour and 30 minute cut or whatever, would you watch it? Yes. I yeah, think I would. I would too. I think yeah. I would. Oh yeah. I, at, at this point in my history with this movie, I have to know. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah. I was like, I, I am dying to see what's going on in five hours. I'll, I'll yeah. say this, and and so we all have kids, and I I think my kids are the oldest, and maybe this is why the film hit me the most is because I've got a daughter in her first year of college, I got a I got a son who's you know a couple of more years of high school, um, and I'm watching them go through the idealism that I went through and yeah. I'm watching my daughter. The world hasn't crushed them yet. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm watching my daughter and my son tackle the same stuff that I tackled. Yeah. And I'm watching, especially angel. She's very passionate about some topics, some very social topics and change and everything else. And, and out of probably all of us, she pays closest attention to the news uh, and, and is the most informed to us, but she's also a female and I'm watching this play out that she's grabbing onto this idealism and she's pushing change out there in her life and in the community that she lives in and even in college. And I'm watching her go through the same things that I went through in my youth at her age in college and struggling the same things. Um, and I mean, I grew up with Perthix disease, so I had leg braces and I saw how cruel the world was and I'm seeing how hard it is for her as a female and watching that from the outside, this movie really is a huge gut punch to me because I don't want to go to her and say, you know what, just be like water and go with the flow. It ain't going to change, but that's not true because if I were to actually take like a step back and say, well, from my days of college to now, there has been some change. And maybe in some elements it's been superficial and it hasn't been the dramatic change that I've wanted, but we're still a young country. And if you think about it, like how many years, you know, uh, a black person has been able to vote, how many years a woman's been able to vote. It's not that long. And well, if you if you take a step back and look at the statistics in terms of like the economy and say, well, how much does a woman make versus a man makes still a huge gap. And I'm working in a company when I, I kind of look around and go, yeah, I still see some of that inequity in play. It's better. Um, and those are the things that my daughter and my son are walking into and they have to deal with. And I've kind of worked that. And why this movie hits so hard, probably at my age, is I go, yeah, it's complicated. You're going to win some battles. You're going to lose some battles. And it's going to be super messy. And um, at the end of the day, you're not going to get everything that you want. And if you at least move the needle a little bit, you got to be happy with that, right? And yeah. so um, that's hard to realize at their age because all they see is idealism. All they see is they can really make this dramatic change. And they can make, you know, all these things happen like the Christer, uh, the, you know, the Chris Christopherson character in this film, but they're going to be in the same place when they look back at it, they're going to go, how much did I actually make an impact on? And it's not going to be the dramatic change that they wanted. And they're not going to actually take their cultivation and their education and everything else 
and move the needle that big. And it'll be a while before they realize they at least moved it, but it wasn't to the point that they wanted to. But over generations and decades, it'll get there. It will get there. Well, also to make change, like you, you change happens and you, you can't tell someone, Hey, just go with the flow. And they want to make this change. If we told everyone to just go with the flow, nothing would ever change. Right. So, but we also, right. so say your daughter moves the needle a little bit. My son moves the needle a little bit. Sammy's daughter moves the needle a little bit. We're all moving it just a little bit every so slightly. Um, then that's when, you know, it's, it's the, the Charlotte broke the camel's back at some point in time, the, all those little changes add up to a big change and we've made, um, huge strides. And I think you're right. Um, our country is very young, especially compared to the rest of the world. And we're basically in that weird, awkward teenage phase right now. Like we are going through so much. Um, and I think people lose sight of that. Um, and, um, well, with the, you can't change anything without conflict. Conflict yeah. is going to happen. Um, that, that's just part of it. And maybe the toughest part to teach is the conflict part. Yeah. You know, and I, I mean, I, I think heaven's gate is a, a prime shows a prime, prime examples of that conflict. Um, yeah. and essentially individuals wanting to keep things the way they are, because they don't want people to challenge the status quo because when you're in power, the worst thing that can happen is people challenging the status quo. It, um, it is. But I mean, keep in mind, like there's there's a pivotal moment where you've got half of the population that just says turn over the 125 guys and we'll live in peace. Like I said, that that's the thing where when when you get to a point as a parent and you start to see your kids going through that conflict or going through their trials and tribulations you have a choice to either say, look, just go with the flow and it'll be easier and, you know, fight that battle another day or let somebody else fight that battle. Or you can say, look, jump in, you you know, go for it. Right. You know, it's 50, 50 or maybe 80, 20, if they'll get what they're hoping for, because the world's kind of a cruel place. But as a parent, yeah. like I said, seeing this play out in a cinematic story and in, in such grand epic and scale. Yeah. It's visually incredible, but I think what hit me more than anything is I'm watching this message play out and I'm then I'm kind of looking at my kids and, and then I'm looking at my age and I'm going, holy cow, I, I kind of feel this movie. It is an experience. Um, and I'm watching my kids going through this same thing that these people from Heaven's Gate are going through. And they're going to have to make those choices of do I make that sacrifice or do I just, do I just go with the flow and, you know, let the corporations win or whatnot. I mean it's it's a powerful movie and i i think you have to like i said i think you have as, to as we are 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 uh employed by massive corporations yeah we are whatever yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah i mean where we are our americans we do seek our yes. comfort i mean you know. yes. yeah exactly <laughs> it's complicated it is complicated yeah, it, it is complicated, complicated yes there's no easy answers i mean you know i just i i think everybody has their valid points and their valid opinions and we should respect everybody's opinions in some ways. I mean, do I think some people are universally wrong? Yes. Yeah. I think some people are universally people right. People who like yeah. the pest, they're universally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that, I think we could all agree on that one. <laughs> or maybe Army of the Dead as well. So yeah. anyway, but, you know, it, these are all valid points. And the movie is kind of profound in that way. Yeah. 
I still think I still think it's a little bit of a jumbled mess. It's interesting. Brad kind of maybe thinks it's a little bit more of a mess. I think it's kind of I, I mean, I think it's a misunderstood masterpiece. Troy obviously uh got the crux of what Chimino was going for right from the hop, which is great because uh that doesn't always happen for a lot of people. Well, I'll tell you what, I think it helps that, you know, just in the last year or so we've watched movies like Hamlet. We've you know, we've we've tackled some films to me, this is one of those where it's you need to have some experience to watch it and understand certain films leading up to this one. So I, I would be the first to say, hey, look, if you ever watched like any version of Hamlet and you're like, man, I don't get that. I don't understand that. Or I don't like Shakespeare. I don't think Heaven's Gate's for you. Right. So if you don't like 2001 A Space Odyssey, yeah, I don't think you're going to like Heaven's Gate at all because there are a lot of similarities between Kubrick um, really expanding on a particular shot versus this one. But I also think, like I said, you can appreciate this thing from a craft perspective, but uh, I don't know. I, I, it hit me in a particular way because that messaging to me, this is like one of the most important films we should be watching this year uh, because I'm still seeing this junk play out now, probably not to the extreme that it was happening at this time period, but it's more subtle and it's happening behind the scenes. And um, I think that makes it, I mean, it hasn't always, I mean, they use the word insurrection in this movie for, I mean, yeah, but it's not so subtle sometimes. Well, what I'm saying is what we see in the news and what we see in the media is the surface of it. I think there are way more things going on and I'm, I'm not trying to sit here and be a conspiracy theorist or something. It's just that the media is going to show you what they want to show you. And there's probably more complexity going on behind the scene and we're just scratching the surface. So with with these kind of things going down the way that they did, that is way more out in the open versus now I think it's happening to a greater extreme in closed doors with handshakes. And um, like, I hate the fact that you got to sit there and go, well, I'm Democrat, Republican or whatever. I, I think the fact that you put your, you know, as a country, we put people into those two categories is the worst thing we could ever do because we're talking about ideology versus actual ideas. Yeah. Turns into us versus them. Absolutely. And that's, that's it. We're seeing this play out on a political front. So this whole, um, you know, cattle baron, all of that stuff, you know, what was happening back then, you know, between these um, farmers and this company, I I think is happening on a, on a much grander scale and a much more dangerous scale. It's not much different than taking immigrant kids away from parents and putting, locking them up. Absolutely not, man. I mean, it's it's all right there. And America is still young, but it is a country that is doomed to repeat itself for whatever reason. I hope one day it does not. But as an American, I'll say that one of our our greatest weaknesses is that we are doomed to repeat ourselves, it seems. But but there there is uh, a hope or a chance. I, I don't think this film is devoid of hope or to your point, Sammy, you said devoid of beauty um, in what we have, I think it's there. Uh, and, and I am an optimist. I do think all of our kids are going to move the needle. I think we move the needle to a certain degree. All of our kids are going to move the needle. It's, it's going to take time. Uh, but you know, I I don't, I don't want anybody thinking like this film is all like boo anti-America, et cetera. There's, (laughs) there's aspects in there that you got to dig deep and it's there but it's really trying to send a message that you just can't rely on the idealism in and of itself. There's yeah. going to be blood, sweat, and tears that yeah. got to back it up too. Yeah. There's a lot of optimism in the film. 
There's a lot yeah. more optimism than you would think. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what else, guys? I mean, oh boy, you picked uh, some poignant films this month, Troy. Yeah. Like, I don't know. The uh, I remember reading too that the battle scene originally in this film was like uh, an hour and forty minutes long. So, ooh, wow. Can you imagine? <laughs> I thought I, you know, we we didn't even get into like some of the moments. Um, a, a couple of notes that I took away when I walked away from it was. It surprised how gruesome it was in terms of its depiction of violence and yeah. uh, the set pieces, especially that last, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes with the dynamite and, and you know, the horses and everything else. Um, Buddy Van Horn, who who did all the court, that w- was just incredibly impressive how to stage all of that. And to your point, Brad, when you're looking at some of those sequences and going, man, I think that horse is dead. I'm looking at that last part and going, how many people died making that with dynamite going yeah. off right next to him and stuff? It looked incredibly uh, dangerous. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I am starting to appreciate films that show consequences for violence. Um, it's a conversation I've had with my wife a lot about letting my son or daughter see things. Um, I'm sure Sammy's kind of in the same boat, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I love having vi- having seen violence and having no consequence for it. I I am starting not to appreciate that because I I once, you know, we we grow up in a society now where like guns are prevalent everywhere, and like you know we sell Nerf guns to our kids at you know three years old. You know, I I want my son to know that you know violence happens when there's guns you know and and there's consequences for that people die yeah um and and so seeing that in this movie where i mean they lay waste to ella in this movie i mean she's literally just i, I like it i i didn't mean to chuckle at this but i think it was just it was after that intense like fight and they're having their moment walking out the door she gets lit up and he goes Ella don't die or something like that. I'm like, dude, she's long gone. Like it's, it's, she's like a sieve. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they light her up. I mean, the, the, the scene that comes to mind every time I see the last scene in this or that scene is a Bonnie and Clyde. It's not as kind of pornographic as the Bonnie and Clyde shootout, but it's, I mean, they hit her with about 12 bullets and it's like 12 squibs and it's just incredibly, yeah, it's visceral. It's a very visceral moment, and it's shocking. The the and, other uh, the other one that stuck out to me is when the mayor gets shot. I mean, it's gruesome, but then he's sitting in the barn with his family, just kind of crying around him. He's trying to, you know, not die and hold that neck or yeah. cheek wound in. And Chris Christopherson walks in to see that. I thought that moment was super powerful. And to your point, Brad, on, in terms of the consequence of violence, you you never see that in film. Like a a guy is shot, he's possibly dying. His He's trying to hold his jaw up and his family doesn't know what to do um, mm-hmm. outside of he just has to endure that pain. I mean, that that was uh, that that that's like a surprising detail that happens in the film and it uh, goes on to like the next big event. But it's those little details that really make this thing stand out. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about the ending of this of this movie. So we kind of flash forward to like 1903 or something like that, where it's a little bit. I guess I forget how many years in the future it is. Um, and Jim is with, I guess his original girlfriend from Harvard, the girl he was staring at during graduation. Um, his wife, and I could, he was married. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I assume that they are married. Um, and 
she wakes up, he lights a cigarette, then he kind of walks out. And I, I was just, I did not know what they were going for in that with him kind of going back. Is it like showing that he's trying to recapture some of his youth because he's a an old man who's grown old or what? So I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, do you have an inter? I have, I have a very specific interpretation of that scene. Okay. You, you can go ahead. He's in a prison. He's 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 in a prison. I mean, so is if, that why he kind of looks like he's crying? I mean, yeah, he crying is crying. Like he's yeah. he's. If you think that that's why when the film ended, I went right back to the beginning. I'm like, oh, I understand the first 25 minutes now because he has promised this ideal. He takes the. Uh, the whole premise of, yes, I'm going to go and take this speech that was just given to me and I'm going to be the cultivated mind. And I'm going to make changes out there and he's going to go do it. And then after all of this happens and he watches it unfold and then in his old age, I think it goes back to some of those lines that he starts to see things clearer and clearer and clearer about how the world works and that he may have thought in the moment when he was you know, teaching those 200 uh, farmers, you know, what the Romans did so that they could sort of defeat, you know, the cattle barons, et cetera, that he was making a change and he was having this big effect. And at the end of the day, he may have said, yep, I realize in the moment, I really thought I was moving that needle and making a change and kind of fighting the man. But if he moved anything, it was just, you know, barely moving it. And I think he's feeling the weight of that idealism and uh, he feels crushed because he couldn't live up to it. Yeah. For me, okay. it's almost like a, I mean, the sun's setting. So it's setting, it's almost a metaphor for his life. The life, sun yeah. is setting, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually the cheapest looking shot in the movie too, by the way. Yeah, Some of the makeup effects don't look like, great too. Yeah. 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 The makeup effects don't look great. I mean, if, it, if anything, they could have lost that epilogue, I think. But it does have some power. And that, you know, the sun is setting on his life in a lot of ways. We don't know if they ever had children or anything. But for me, it, I agree it's kind of like a prison. But what it really is, is his life has, I mean, for him, there's no real purpose. Yeah. There's no purpose. He's lost any, I mean, you could get even deeper and say, you know, he's just sitting next to a fireplace and, you know, the fire, the spark is gone. He has to get up and get away from it. I mean, it's just, you could, go, <laughs> you could go into all kinds of metaphors about it and stuff, but Truly, that's what I got from it is that he has a comfortable life that he chose to walk away from for purpose. And purpose betrayed him, I think, in his brain. He tried to make it happen and it didn't work for him. And I think that's why you get the sadness. Yeah. It's 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 pretty deep shit. I mean, it's not it's <laughs> it, it's a deep movie. I mean, it is. Like again, I don't think it's as masterful as Troy probably thinks. And I'd be curious if you thought that after watching it five times, but um, maybe, maybe you would maybe you'd think it, you know, after the fifth time, he'd be like, Jesus guys, this is the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> so you wonder if like, like Chimino had that vision in his head and the reason he was doing everything so like methodically is because he wanted his vision to match what was in his head because he, he knew he had this grand vision and it had to match it. And if it didn't, like it wasn't going to work, you know, like uh, he, he was a jerk. There's no doubt about it. Yes, and, yes. and I'm sure he outgrew that as time went on. I know by the time he got to the end of his life, he looked totally different. He was certainly obsessed with his looks and everything. He completely changed himself. Have you ever seen photos of him toward the end? Yeah. Of his life? He looked nothing like he did when he was younger. He had that dark um, hair like that. 
Yeah. Yeah, almost yeah, like yeah, a yeah, Bon Jovi like uh, yeah. like man slash female haircut. And there were there were the, these stories and everything. I think Chimino, he was a lot smarter than he gets credit for. And I agree. a lot more talented yeah. than he got credit for. And uh, you know, I think I read somewhere that his favorite book was Moby Dick. Yeah, I was just gonna and, bring that up. He he was a huge yeah. fan of Moby Dick, so which is my Mo- favorite book. Yeah, and Moby Dick was completely panned when it came out. Like everybody thought it was one of the worst things ever written. Mm-hmm. And yeah. now, arguably, you consider it's one of the five best pieces of literature ever created. And you can use the metaphor of Moby Dick on every single thing in the world. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. chasing the white whale. I mean, you can use it for everything. And I, I and think I think I think this is his Moby Dick. I mean, when when you talk about Christofferson you know, chasing that idealism, et cetera, to Sammy's point, you can use the Moby Dick metaphor on anything. I, I think it's very much evident here within this, which again, makes it certainly. very tragic. Yeah. yeah. He's certainly chasing the white whale yeah. and that he's trying to bring this peace and harmony to the West and, and help these people. I mean, that's certainly some type of chasing there. So yeah, man, this is a, wow. <laughs> These yeah, conversations well, sometimes I never know where they're going to go. <laughs> well, like you said, Sammy, I, I am curious, like my fourth or fifth time, will I be, will the experience still floor me the way it did my first time? But I would have the same question for both of you. When your kids get into college or you've gotten a little bit more experience with them and kind of seen them go through the things that you went through in that idealism and then revisit this film and would it, would it have a different experience for you too? I think this yeah. is one of those films that as you watch, as you get older, you will take something different out of it each time. Like you watch it as a teenager, 20 year old, you may hate it, but you could probably go, wow, I, I really appreciate the craftsmanship that's going on um, or the filmmaking, but then add a couple of decades to that and have a family, kids, whatever, get a little bit more life under your belt. You may come across this again and go, I have a different uh, experience with this film. Yeah. Yeah. I think at bare minimum, you can at least appreciate the craftsmanship that goes into this movie. You can say whatever you want about anything else, but I, I think you cannot say anything about the way this movie was made. Oh yeah. yeah. Now maybe the cruelty of animals, things like that. Yes. But yeah. like, yes, what's on screen is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. My son came in during the train sequence with the people standing on top of the train. Mm-hmm. And he came in during the roller skate sequence. I had to watch when he came in because there is a, there's some prevalent nudity in this film. Yep. And we just we just aren't really quite prepared to have that conversation yet. Well, at least dad isn't. Anyway, let's put it that way. We'll get there. But um, he came in, and even he stopped for a second, looked at him. He's like, "Wow." He goes, "They do that with CG?" Like, no. <laughs> no. no, that's a that's no. a train that they had to uh, apparently took a lot to get there. So they had to pick it up a lot of hell. Yeah, they had to pick up with a helicopter, set it on a flatbed, and drive it all the way out there. Yep. Yep. <laughs> put nuts. it on a track. <laughs> no, he was kind of blown away by all that. This conversation did not disappoint. I I knew us getting together and talking about it, it would be pretty epic. So I I think it's time where we just classify this thing. Uh, I'm going to go first. So it's not a bomb. Yep. I, I can't say this enough. I think it's an American masterpiece. I am very excited to watch it again, not in the next year or two. I do want to give this thing some distance, but I can't wait to watch it again. And if there's a five-hour cut out there, Sign me up, man. I'm I'm I want to stand in line. I'll buy the T-shirt. I'm ready to go. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brad, what about you? Is uh, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate a bomb? It is not a bomb. I think 
out of the three of us, I probably liked it the least, but I still liked it quite a bit. So uh, I would say it's not a bomb for sure. Okay. Sammy, how about you? One of the, calling this one of the worst movies of all time is, is shocking. We watched Ishtar last year or mm-hmm. last week. Yes. Ishtar is like one of the worst. They're not even in the same yeah. league. So, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I never like those worst films of all time lists because they are always so incredibly wrong. I mean, the, like I said, you listen to you guys last week, the 19 films in front of Ishtar. It was like, what is going on? <laughs> oh, I agree. I mean, there's, there's some bad movies in there, but geez. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Calling this film one of the worst films ever made uh, is it's ludicrous. It's, it's insane. It, this movie is not a bomb. This movie is it's the end of an era. In American filmmaking, it really is in a lot in a lot of ways. In a yeah. lot of ways. Unfortunately, it, it's had this kind of this kind of stain on it, but it really is the end of what I can still consider the greatest decade of uh, American filmmaking, the seventies. Yeah, it's right there at the tail end of it, and uh, it's a shame it went down like it did. Uh, it's a shame Chimino couldn't put himself aside and. And maybe this film doesn't get made if he if he isn't the jerk he was behind the scenes and everything. I don't know. But I think he was talented enough and smart enough that this movie would have been made no matter what he would have done. And, uh, yeah, I, if people have sat on this for a long time thinking it's one of the quote-unquote one of the worst movies ever made, you need to just sit down and watch it. Even if you've got to watch it in two settings, you just need to sit down and watch it because I guarantee you it'll blow your mind in some ways. Yeah, I, w- I would say even if you don't like the film, you will walk away. I think Brad said it best. You will walk away with an appreciation of what yeah. can be done within a film industry just on scale without CGI, without the gimmicks that we have today. I mean, it's it's freaking impressive. Yeah, I don't – you'll never I, – I mean, I, I say this and I'll say it again. You will never see anything like this ever made again. Oh, yeah. absolutely. There's no way. <laughs> well, Brad, uh, we've got one more movie – in November to talk about in terms of first time watches of bombs that we haven't seen. What, what are we closing the month out with? We are going to watch Michael Mann's black hat. Oh boy. Which I can't wait for. Cause that is the only Michael Mann film I've not seen. Yeah. It's got a Hemsworth, that, I there, right? I haven't seen that one either. You going to play along? Yeah. I, watch I'll, it with us. <laughs> uh, I might, I might, well, no, I'm not coming on the show again. <laughs> no, well, I will come on the show again, but not from now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Funny, I'm on hiatus, but I'm podcasting every single day this week. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, man. I I will say I tried to see if the director's cut, which is apparently the preferable cut of the film, is available, and it's not. So we will just be be doing the right. Reg- you don't have you have the regular one, right? I have the Blu-ray. Whatever's on the Blu-ray. Yeah, the, the Blu-ray is just the regular cut. It is not the director's cut. So uh, we will be talking about the standard cut of the film. So yeah. apparently the director's cut was only showing on like TV or something like that. It's crazy. And from what I've read with interviews with Michael Mann, it might be the last Michael Mann film you ever see. Yeah, oh. unfortunately. Wow. Okay. Uh, and then a, had a really bad experience. <laughs> then December, do we want to go ahead and just uh, for everybody playing along, what films yeah. we got lined up? Yeah, we are doing. So the people behind Lonely Island also make films. So we are doing all, all I think most of the Lonely Island films. So we are starting off with Brigsby Bear, uh, followed by Hot Rod. And then we're doing Pop Star, uh, Never Stop Stopping. And then the last film is MacGruber. Sweet. Which we don't do many comedies. So I'm looking forward to doing 
a month pretty much of comedies. And these were all recommendations um, that we've been getting over the last like year and a half. And then we just we got kinda... uh, we got Bruce B. Bear. No, yeah, you're right. We got all these have been all these are recommendations. So we were just like, wait a minute, they're all done by the same group of people. So let's just do them all together. So, yeah, Bruce, yeah. B., Bruce B. Bear, I did not know, but uh, was done by the same group, and I didn't know what y'all's theme was. Now it all makes sense. <laughs> hey, what else says Christmas than these films, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm well, on a boat. I'm on a boat. <laughs> well, Sammy, you want to talk uh, about the GGTMC yeah. real quick? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Things are kind of uh, germinating behind the scenes. Uh, seeds are being planted. Uh, I'm optimistic. That's what I'll say. Okay. Optimistic. I'm very, uh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling really good about things. So those so. obituaries might have been premature. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, they were never meant to be, yeah, I am I done. I know. But, Hiatus. You know, yeah, I don't know if, uh, you know, but everybody reacts to everything uh, black and white nowadays. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm just excited that, uh, you know, I'm talking movies with Will again and uh, hopefully uh, we'll get some stuff out pretty soon and uh, come back. I don't know when. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but hopefully it'll happen. Christmas is around the corner. It's on my list. So just yeah. want to hear you guys' it'll, voice again. <laughs> it'll be it'll be it'll be fun. It'll be uh just to kind of give everybody a little sneak peek, we've done some dry runs on some things. Uh, it's been pretty funny. <laughs> it's been some pretty, <laughs> pretty ridiculous stuff talked about. And then true, if you've listened to the show in the last five to 10 years, then you'll know uh, we take films down certain paths we don't even expect. Them to go. <laughs> That's what's fun about it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, we're still, uh, the, you know, uh, well, here's one of the great things. I'm on hiatus. Our downloads are like through the roof. Oh, there you go. That's a, it's amazing. Everybody uh, loves you, man. Yeah, it's amazing. It's like, you know, they they were kind of stable, stagnant for a long time. Yeah. And anybody that does production on a podcast, you guys know, you look at these things. Mm-hmm. And but then when I announced Trust me, I look at trend, I look at trends all the time. Brad please. looks at him, yeah. I I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> it it, it, it kind of goes up and down, but man, when when I, we announced the hiatus and I said it'll be a while, they just all the episodes went through the roof. There you go. Yeah, Thank we you. we get questions all the time about numbers. I'm like, I have no idea. Talk with Brad, man. He he takes care of that. I think people were afraid I was going to pull it all down, but that was never the game plan either. Oh, there you go. Well, what did you have something else, Brad? Because I have one more thing before we get into the. Oh, I was. Go ahead. I was just going to give out the uh, if you want to reach out for recommendations, uh, you can send those to notabombpod at gmail Also, get at us at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as well. Sweet. Well, I, this is probably like a two and a half hour episode. I hope you've listened this far. We are recording the week of Thanksgiving. So Turkey oh, Day yes. is right around the corner. And uh, in, in the United States, we have a lot of people in the United who States. listen internationally. Yes. Yes. I don't know what uh, I'm surprised how many countries uh, apparently pop up um, that are downloading. So in the U.S., we're celebrating Thanksgiving. And uh, I the thing I just want to bring up. I'm sure applies to every country, but this is kind of a big time of year for me. It's like my favorite holiday, but it's also the holiday that reminds me like, Hey, you got to go take care of, you know, the people in the world and especially in your community. And so a lot of stuff I've been working on, um, even at work have to do with the, you know, the topic of giving and then also food insecurity. So just to share a couple of statistics, like 10% of U.S. households are worried about having enough food to just feed their families throughout any part of the year. And in 2020, the average SNAP benefit, which most people would know that um, used to be called like food stamps, 
basically in 2020, a person, um, got about $121 per month, which was $1.39 per person per meal, which is shocking in, in my opinion. So I think Thanksgiving is like the perfect time to kind of stop and take stock in these kind of numbers and uh, what kind of goes on, especially in your community. Like I said, I'm, I'm talking about the United States, but for everybody who's listening all over the world, I think this pertains to you too. Please consider making some type of donation to your local food bank or organizations like feedingamerica.org if you live in the US or any of the organizations within your country where they can provide um, really help to families who are worried about food insecurity. So this is always the time of the year that I try to make a big donation, um, especially since we live out in Baltimore to like the Baltimore Food Bank, et cetera, um, because it's something that's near and dear to my heart. I'm just encouraging everybody to kind of take stock and be thankful for what you have. Um, for the opportunity that you can even sit here and listen to Sammy, Brad, and myself, you know, talk uh, for two and a half hours about a Michael Cimino film from 1980. But more importantly, that you got your roof over your head, you're putting food on the table for your family. And if you're in any type of position that you can give, please give out to your community, um, especially during this holiday season. So that's my pitch. Yeah, well said, sir. Good job. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and hey, Sammy's coming back in a few weeks because he picked out something for December. We've got a bunch of guests coming. And next week, we're going to talk Michael Mann's uh, Black Hat. I can't thank you guys enough for downloading this episode, spending some time with us. I hope you and your family are going to have a wonderful Turkey Day if you're in the U.S. I am super thankful just to have an amazing community and family that we can interact with and talk about films. And I'm super grateful that... Um, Brad, Sammy, that I got you guys in my life, man. I mean, yeah. you're you're some of the best friends any guy could ever ask for. And uh, I know my family is super thankful to know you guys. You you just better our lives um, all around. And yeah, don't make me cry, man. Quit. Yeah. You're not so bad yourself, Troy. I uh, appreciate it. <laughs> well, Thank yeah. Thanks for joining us, folks. We'll catch you next week. Um, and we talk uh, Michael Mayfield. Don't lose your heads. Hey, 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 hey. I always made Nate pay. <laughs> 